You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's time to wake up with the morning boys on Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And here are your hosts, Ryan Hickey and Mark Kelly. It is a good Monday morning, and welcome into the Morning Boys. Ryan Hickey and Mark Everett Kelly with you here on a Monday. Thanks so much for tuning in on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. I feel like we always have, Mark, a pretty mm. good show lined up. Um, you know, we, we always try to bring our best. We always try to really, as much as we can, give the audience what they want to listen to, have them be informed, entertained. Look, look, look I mean, look at the talent. I mean, obviously. Look at, I mean, right. Look at the talent we have here, too. One guy that is just, no one will ever match talent wise in the radio industry. It's right here. Mark Everett Kelly. <laughs> And myself as a sidekick, just trying to hang on there as much as possible and try to just not drag him down. I think I'm your sidekick. But, Mark, I I think we have a pretty good show today. I think with everything that happened, just in the divisional round alone, we can do five hours on. With all the excitement, obviously you have the Titans upsetting the Ravens. You had just an incredible comeback from the Chiefs over the Texans. Two of the great games of the Packers and 49ers taking care of business in their respective games. So just that alone, previewing the championship games, reacting to all the division round games. That mm-hmm. could be five hours, right? Oh, on top of that, absolutely. on top of that, you have the Browns making a head coaching hire yesterday as they hired Vikings offense coordinator Kevin Stansky. Yeah. You have, we have Christine Furkler coming in in about 20, 25 minutes to talk yep. about the Giants hiring Joe Judge, her thoughts about it, and what are some expectations moving forward for this team. So you have, we have that. Not to mention, we have the national championship game tonight. Oh, that's LSU, right. I, Clemson. I, I, I forgot about that. You know what? It's, I, good. it's been so long. Like, was it like like a month ago? That they played in the, div- the timing. I'm going to say the divisional awful. round. Uh, it was like December 28th, right? December 28th. Yeah. It's been. I'm with you. The timing has just been absolutely awful. Um, so hopefully, you know, from least from that sense, that it's nice that college football is back, but it's you know it's almost like to your point, forgotten about. It's like, oh wow, it's here. Last Monday, you know, whatever you want to say, it could have been last Monday, but either way, the championship game is tonight. LSU Clemson. Just an insane game. We have that covered up and down. I'm very excited to talk about that game. So, Mark, I mean, incredible weekend. Hopefully you had a great weekend. I know it was very busy for you. Yeah. Um, so yeah. we'll just start right – you know, we'll start with that. If you do want to give us a call on any reaction, 631-300-4477. That's 631-300-4477. So, Mark, we will start with the divisional round and all the action that happened. So in a nice way to kind of include all the games, kind of give you all our thoughts from all the four games that happened – We'll start with a simple question again. If you want to join in, 631-300-4477. Which team or which player had the most impressive performance, right? Because, I mean, I think you can make an argument for all four of the winning teams that their performance was the most impressive of the weekend because the Packers obviously had some questions. Same with the Vikings, uh, excuse me, with the 49ers. There's some inconsistencies there where, you know, some unknowns for the most part with Jimmy Jean, some have, for how young and inexperienced this 49ers team is. You had a Vikings team coming in hot. Obviously, you have the massive comeback by the Chiefs down 24 nothing to rattle off 41 straight points. You have the, Raven, uh, the Ravens losing at home as the Titans continue, continue to just be the team that you don't want to play in the postseason as they upset the top-seeded Ravens. So I, I feel like any of the four winners right there have a case as to why they had the most impressive performance of the weekend. And you remind me, uh, which team case, takes the cake? Well, it's got, it's got to be the Titans. I mean, going into that game, I remember talking with a bunch of people who – might have had a little bit of doubt in the Ravens, and I tried to convince them, you know, this team is like no other that we've seen. They have the ability to run past the ball equally. Like I said, only 71 yards in difference, and they had 3,000 of each. So it's not like a small measure. And everything they seemed to do during the regular season was 
forgotten, like you said. And, and before we do the show, and Ryan does a great job of putting together uh, like a package of, of things that we can talk about. And one of the things he mentioned is that they went away from their run game totally. And he passed the what, 59 times? 59 times. And he only threw, what, 300-something passes during the regular season? Like, he, he didn't really – most of his attempts per game were like – I think he – if he threw over 25 times in any game, I would be surprised. I got to look that up. But He threw over 25 times over – you know, a few times. But to your point, they were – I have to double-check this. If not the bottom in terms of passes attempted per year – Bottom three. Yeah. So, right, they, they ran the ball. They rarely threw it. But when they did, they were super, super efficient. Mm-hmm. And I, that, to me, was a, a shock because watching the first half, I kept waiting for them to break out, which not necessarily do what the Chiefs did to the, the Texans, but kind of get, you know, get the game back in their control. And even falling behind just like they did 14 nothing. That's not a huge deficit. I mean, you saw, like, the, I remember the Patriots a couple of years ago against them, against Baltimore, falling by, by 14 twice, two different times in a game, and being able to come back. So I think teams with postseason experience kind of swallow that and then are able to, you know, move on, stay in their game plan, and continue what they're doing. And I know the Ravens do have experience overall. Obviously, they have postseason experience. And I thought last season's loss – would help them, and it didn't seem to. So now they have two straight losses on their home field, and you hear some of their own players saying, we can't get it done. Like uh, Humphrey, one of their defensive players, uh, was critical of his own players. And and after two playoff games, like you go 14-2 and you lose like that, that that really stings because you dominated so much. You had all this hype. Lamar Jackson got a lot of attention that he deserved, and he played – wonderfully through the regular season so this shouldn't really be forgotten like I don't think it really puts like a black stain on it but it definitely makes you wonder you looked at what the Titans did and I remember talking to Terrell about it and they had a specific way that they were able to shadow him so he couldn't do some of the things that he did running the ball and then I I guess that you know Mark Ingram too he, he didn't really play much of a factor. I know he had an injury. Um, but when you combine the two Alabama running backs, I know uh, there, there was some talk. You know, my, my, my fiance, obviously, Alabama got, so she was talking about the fact that they'll be playing each other. You know, two Heisman Trophy winners, the, the only two in Alabama history, uh, will be playing each other on, on Saturday night. And we really saw who the star was. And this guy is, he's a, I mean, he's a, a beast. He's a, literally a beast. Uh, and when you look at his performance, not even in the playoffs, but going back in his last eight games, uh, running for 159 yards a game, I think it's 1,273 yards over that eight-game span. I mean, he missed a couple games toward the end of the year. But even in his last three games, uh, he's running for, what, 210, uh, uh, 180, 195. He has the only player in NFL history to run for 180 yards or more in three straight games. And when you think of all the running backs – that have played. 13 other guys have done it twice. Nobody's done it three straight times. And obviously, it's combined regular season and postseason, so you really normally don't do that. I mean, still officially nobody's done it right. three straight games. But to your but point, too, like that Texans game, Week 17, was a playoff game. They had to win that game again. And exactly. So not only to, right, did he make history running for 180 yards three straight games, he did in essentially what was three straight playoff games for the Titans. To your point, just to highlight just how impressive 
uh, Derek Henry's performance was. Mm -hmm. it, I, I, not only that, but getting the ball as, as many times as he did. 30 times against Baltimore, 34 times against New England, 32 times against Houston, 211 against Houston, 182 against New England, 195 against Baltimore. Uh, it's it just, just a really, really impressive last couple games. It's 588 total yards, 96 carries, four touchdowns. And when you look at it in the overall postseason history, there's only a handful of guys that ran for more yards in the divisional round. Uh, Eric Dickerson, we talked about this. Eric Dickerson ran for 248 against Dallas. I still remember that. It was a 20-0 win in 1985. It was in Anaheim. Lawrence McCutcheon, again, in Anaheim, did it against the Cardinals. Ran for 202 yards in 75. Ryan Grant, a guy from Notre Dame, ran for over 201 yards against Seattle in 19, uh, excuse me, in 2007. And then Terrell Davis uh, against the Dolphins in 98 uh, ran for 199 yards. And then you have you have Derrick Henry, uh, and we're talking about you know Dickerson Hall of Famer. McCutcheon was a very good running back for for a Rams team that was always in either the championship game or the divisional round game. Made the Super Bowl once in the 70s. Ryan Grant was one of the key members of that last uh, Brett Favre team that made it to the championship game against the Giants. And, and here you have you know, Terrell Davis, the Hall of Famer. So Derrick Henry is in some really good company here. And he seems to be setting himself apart. I mean, you had some numbers. What, what, what were your numbers you were telling me before? Well, a lot of it was, you know, to your point, right, like first player with 180, over 180 yards, three straight games. For the playoffs now, two games, he has a total to 377 yards. And, again, that's against the Patriots, who had arguably were one of the best defenses in all the NFL, probably one of the best defenses left, at least in the, on the AFC side, and against the Ravens, who, again, are physical. I mean, their defense isn't – you know, they're a very physical defense, right? And to your point, you kind of know what's coming with the, with the Titans' game plan. They still couldn't stop it. But to you, so you're, you know, you're talking about all these carries, and basically Derrick Henry is carrying the Titans offensively. Mm -hmm. He has, in the postseason – 233 yards after contact in these two games. Mm. It's incredible, right? The first guy can rarely get him down, and we see not too many guys, especially in the second half, are interested in tackling Derrick Henry because he's so big, he grinds you down, and it's just it's a bruising 60-minute football game. So 233 yards after contact in these two playoff games. Mm -hmm. How many passing yards does Ryan Tannehill have in the postseason? 160. Think about that. 233 yards just after contact for Derrick Henry compared to 160 total passing yards for Ryan Tannehill in this postseason run so far for the Titans. So you can see what their bread and butter is. They're not getting away from it. And credit Mike Grable, because to your point, Derrick Henry had over 30 carries right now in three straight games. And again, week, week 17, he had to win, so essentially three straight playoff games. They know what works. They're riding it, and they're not afraid to say, this is what we're going to do. Try to stop us. Because that's essentially what the Ravens did. They said the, the Ravens put eight or nine guys in the box, and Mike Rabel's like, you know what? We're still going to run because we know you're not interested in tackling Derrick Henry. Not many of your players can tackle Derrick Henry. And that play, I'm not sure, you know, the play that kind of went viral was Earl Thomas kind of talking, you know, about how this team leading up to the game, how they're different. They're going to tackle Derrick Henry. And then you have Derrick Henry just – I stiff-arming him, and basically you have Earl Thomas showing no real interest in trying to tackle Henry in that second half. I believe it was the same play, or if not, it, it happened in the second half as well. One of, you know, Matthew Judon, who was a, a very good tackler, a very hard hitter for that Ravens defense, met Henry right in the hole. Mm -hmm. Hard, direct, con you know, straight shot, wasn't chipped, was, hit him right in the hole, unblocked. Derrick Henry didn't even break stride, Mark. He just basically kept running like no one was there, ran him over, and then he broke, you know, I think it was like 30, 40 yards on tuck before someone knocked him out of bounds finally. It's just one of those things where Derrick Henry is so big, so massive, even if you load up the box, even if you sell out with the run, 
eight or nine guys in the box, which is essentially what the Titans did on defense to try to stop Lamar Jackson and the Ravens, and it worked for the most part. Mm -hmm. The Ravens tried it back at the Titans, and the Titans have a physical style of football led by their head coach, Mike Vrabel, and combine that with just an extremely physical and tough guy to bring down Derrick Henry, you can't stop him. Which is why I, you know, I to your, I, you know, I'm buying in right now on, on the Titans absolutely making the Super Bowl and legitimate. Like I think they're a legitimate contender to win the Super Bowl. Remember a few years ago we had the Jacksonville Jaguars with Blake Bortles. They beat the Bills at home. Then they they beat the Steelers and they had this magical run. You know they're close against the Patriots. I think some people bought into that Jaguars team. Right, they had a lot of young pieces on defense, but I don't think you know of the four teams that you know made it to the conference championship that year in 2017. I would think it's safe to say that. Of the four teams, the Vikings, the Eagles, the Patriots, and the Jaguars, the Jaguars are fourth on almost everyone's list of who can legitimately win the Super Bowl out of those four teams, right? The Titans are not fourth out of, out of the teams remaining, right? I, I think that's a definitely a fair thing to say. They are not the last team that you would suspect or pick of the four remaining teams to win the Super Bowl because their strategy and, and their game plan is to punch you in the mouth on both lines of scrimmage and play physical, and once they get a lead, forget it. Like, you're not, like we saw the two. The, they got put up 14 nothing. and to your point, the Ravens panicked all year, right? We, I just looked up to your point. The Ravens threw the ball the least amount of times this year. 289, time, 289 pass attempts the entire year. Lamar Jackson threw 59 passes in this game. They got down 14-0. I think right away some doubt and some panic set in because they realized we're not going to be able to stop Derrick Henry. And possessions, like the game shortens up, which is why the running game and, and the style and the way that the Titans are playing is so impressive and why it's been so successful even when they were down, they were down to the Patriots. They came back, tied it up, or took the lead before halftime, and then just were able to grind the clock away. Their style is once they get up, they grind the clock. It's so hard to stop them. And the Ravens knew, like, this game is going to get shorter. We're going to have less possessions than normal. we got to capitalize. I think that's why they threw the ball 59 times, in part because I'm not going to get on Lamar. Like, I know, obviously, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon before the games, a lot of people were criticizing Lamar Jackson. To your point, now he's 0-2 in the playoffs. The Chargers game left a bad uh, taste in everyone's mouth going into this offseason. Obviously, the 14-game winning streak kind of erased all that. But there's still some question marks. How can he play in the postseason? He didn't have a, a great game. The stats will tell you otherwise, you know, over 300 passing yards, over 100 rushing yards. But he didn't have a great game. He wasn't helped. You know, some bad drops by receivers and tight ends. But I, I think, when, you know, he is to blame. But I think also, to the most part, too, the coaches panicked when they saw the Titans on the other side, what they can do, realized how dangerous they were, and I think really tried to go for the home run ball and try to just kind of take those quick shots and really just try to get a big play as quick as possible to kind of get back and get the momentum. They couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Settle for field goals early in the first half. And from there, you said you saw the Titans salt away the clock and you saw the defense of the Ravens not interested in tackling Derrick Henry in that second half. That why, to me, it's a combined effort in terms of blame for the Ravens. But to your point, too, for all the panicking that happened on the Baltimore sideline, for all the, you know, getting away from their identity, if you want to say, that is as large part and maybe even more credit due to the Titans and their style of play and just, again, establishing, know what they do well. How many times do we see teams or coaches, we can even talk about this, tight, uh, this Texans-Chiefs game. Texans go up 24-0, right? Obviously a few breaks with the fumble, with the muffed, uh, with the blocked punt and then the muffed kick return or the punt return. So you had two big breaks that kind of go your way to get two touchdowns on the board. But the, t the first drive of the game, the Texans moved the ball well, scored a touchdown after, you know, and then they get the, the field goal, that another nice drive. So they're moving the ball against the Chiefs, right? And you say, don't get away from what works. Well, it seems like as soon as the Chiefs had that big uh, kickoff return and then started scoring against momentum, Bill O'Brien, that Texas offense, started to panic a little bit, got away from what they wanted to do. Obviously, that led to the fake punt. That was just a disaster. And they kind of shied away from their identity, 
panicked and tried to just either make it, you know, just kind of get everything all back at once or just go away from what they do normally that's made them successful to get to this point in the second round of the playoffs. The Titans have not done that. Again, they're leading the entire game, so that kind of helps to not get away from your running identity when you don't have to throw the ball as much. But even against the Patriots last week, like they were down before that drive, before halftime, to put them up. And Derrick Henry got the ball every single time, either out of the backfield as a catch or running the ball. So they, once the Titans figure out a game plan, they rarely deviate from it. Their defense is physical enough to make some plays, keep you in it. And it's just why it's so impressive because they, right now, are a team that is just hot. They mm-hmm. remind me a lot of the Jets from 09 and 010 with a better quarterback. Right, they they ran like Thomas, like they ran the ball a lot. They're physical. They kept time of possession on their side, and their defense was hard nosed. You know, again, played a physical style, kind of kept the other offense in check. And now you have a Titans team red hot, going to Kansas City, which is going to be just a fantastic matchup. And you got to, you know, the uh, the Titans already won that uh, matchup earlier in the year in Tennessee. It'd be interesting to see. But I think kind of both teams are different from when that first oh, yeah. game was played. I mean, you had oh, yeah. Ryan Tannehill slinging all over the yard. Now, like you said, he has 160 yards in two games for how much passing is influence and how much, you know, how important the passing game is. I'm with you. The Titans were definitely the most impressive uh, performance of the weekend. And like I said, they had the biggest upset maybe by far, I think. You know, the Vikings obviously have, have their argument over beating the Saints last week. But six seed going – Beating a team who had a 14-game winning streak, best record in the NFL, MVP at quarterback. Everything was kind of going the Ravens' way. And especially, you know, with the Patriots losing, I think a lot of people kind of viewed the Ravens as maybe the best bet to make the playoffs, especially with the AFC a little bit weaker than the NFC. Obviously, again, the Titans go in there, shake things up. Mike Vrabel just doing a hell of a job so far in Tennessee. And the Titans do get the win. We'll absolutely talk about that Chiefs-Texans game more. So the, the Chiefs come back from a 24-0 first-half deficit, mm. rattle off 41 straight points. And another point I want to get to this a little bit later on, Mark, is that a fan went viral for a superstitious act that he did during the game that coincidentally or uncoincidentally, depending on how superstitious you are and if you kind of believe those things as a fan. I have, I have a story about that. Help, like, as soon as he did what he did, the Chiefs started their comeback. So I want to talk about later on how superstitious are you as a fan and what kind of lengths would you go to in order to try to help your team win. Um, so we'll obviously get to that. But when we come back, we'll have Christine Furco, Giants Insider Magazine. When we come next, talk about her thoughts on the Joe Judge hire. What are some reasonable expectations? What, what kind of a staff will look like? Uh, we have some rumors for defense coordinator, still nothing for offense coordinator. So we'll get to the Giants hiring Joe Judge and, all, and more with Christine Furco and the Morning Boys. Ryan Hickey and Mark Every come back right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It, it is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're listening to the Morning Boys on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Yeah, I love it. Perfect. It is the Morning Boys, Ryan Hickey and Mark Everett Kelly with you on a Monday morning. In case you're just tuning in, hearing us for the first time, or normally listening to us on a Tuesday and Friday. New year comes a new time slot, Monday and Thursday. Still 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. on the East Coast, but we will be here now every Monday and Tuesday, uh, Monday, Thursday, excuse me, instead of Tuesday, Friday. So hope that still fits in your schedule. You can still make us a part of your mornings one way or another. The song, Mark, you, you hit on it, you, you're hearing it. Who Are You by The Who? Very fitting as we welcome in Christine Furco, Giants Insider Magazine contributor at Christine Furco on Twitter because the Giants make a new hire last week, Joe Judge. The first reaction by all the fan base, a lot of the media was, who is this guy? Who, who, who? So to kind of get those answers, kind of dive into who Joe Judge is, what can we can expect from his head coaching style, you know, just everything we can get moving forward. Christine is here to break down. So Christine, Ryan Hickey, Mark Everett, Kelly with you. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. How are you? Good 
Good morning. How are you? I think we all know who Joe Judge is now. Yes. Oh, yes. So speaking of – so, right, you, we talked about as soon as he's hired, that was the first question is who who is Joe Judge. Obviously, the, the special teams coordinator uh, for the Nigga Patriots comes down, crushes the hire and the Giants hire Joe, and then he has this press conference where I think anyone who has any doubts or – just really question the move and wanted someone else. I think really, for the most part, was determined to hear Joe Judge really speaking confidently, talking about the direction that the Giants will have to play a physical style of football. They'll be disciplined and essentially brought a lot of the same principles that he learned under, under Bill Belichick in New England that he's going to try to bring here to, uh, to New York. So what, what was your first impressions after listening to that kind of press conference and hearing the message and the style that at least that Joe was trying to bring here to the Giants? Oh, when... But when we first heard the announcement, I was surprised like everyone else, but I knew the Giants were onto something when I found out that Judge was coached under Bill Belichick and the great Nick Saban. You know, being a special teams coach and a wide receiver coach with the Patriots where he won three Super Bowls and special teams assistant with Alabama where he won two national titles. Right, right out of the gate, you knew that his resume wasn't very, very impressive. I was on board right away. I had a really good feeling, and I had confidence that the Giants had finally, <laughs> after Pat Shermer, made the right choice, you know, especially with Bill Belichick saying that, you know, Judge thinks quickly, he's an excellent teacher, and that the game comes easy to him. I was not enamored with Matt Rule, who seemed to be the likely replacement for Pat Shermer. Really? Why, why so, is that? Because obviously a lot of, at least in terms of Giants fans, that was kind of the name that a lot of people wanted. That was kind of their guy that they thought they would get. Obviously has a connection with the Giants coaching um, before he went over to Temple and then to Baylor. How come, what, what was it about Matt Rule that you weren't so sold on or enamored with where you didn't think he would be successful with the Giants? Well, I give him credit for turning around Temple and Baylor, but that's college. Let's remember that. You know, unlike Judge, who was already in the NFL, Matt Rule, to me, came off more as a politician, more of a rah-rah guy personality, which is very suited for college. And like I said, Joe Judge was already a real football coach, not a quarterback whisperer or a defensive guru. And I think that Matt Rule getting a ridiculous seven-year, $60 million, potential $70 million, uh, contract from David Tepper, coach of the Carolina Panthers. I think I think he got bamboozled by a good salesman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you there, Christine, at least money-wise. That, like, to your point, that's a lot of money for a first-time NFL that's head coach. That's a lot of money. And the Giants were never going to give seven years to anyone. And when, when Rule called the Giants, you know, to see if they would match that offer – you know, without him being interviewed, I was glad that the Giants declined. You know, they weren't, like I said, they weren't giving seven years to anyone. And they already wanted Joe Judge, who had been on the radar for years. And the Giants also acted quickly because they had fear that Judge would return to his alma mater, Mississippi State, who wanted him to be their head coach. Right. And I'm with you there, but, too. Like, right, the Giants – you know, me and Mark kind of talked about on Friday, kind of they seemed a little dysfunctional since kind of Tom Coughlin left with Ben McAdoo and Pat Shermer, just a lot of behind-the-scenes messes that normally for a Giants team that's so first-class, well-run through ownership down that we're not really accustomed to seeing. Um, my question with that, at least going kind of laying that out there, is 
obviously Joe Judge is a first-time head coach. And really, you know, between Matt Rule and a lot of the other candidates that the Giants either did plan to interview or did interview in the past, it was seemed like it was going to be a first-time NFL head coach that was going to get this job. Does that worry you at all? Because obviously the last two head coaches of the Giants, Pat Shermer and Ben McAdoo, were first-time NFL head coach. Or, or, excuse me, Ben McAdoo was. Pat Shermer had a two-year stint in Cleveland that didn't work out. Uh, do you like that the Giants, or does that concern you at all, I should say, that Joe Judge would be a first-time NFL head coach kind of coming and still kind of learning on the job per se? Are you confident that he has enough knowledge, enough experience under Bill Belichick to kind of come in seamlessly here and really transition the Giants to, uh, to greener pastures? Well, look, nobody knows who's going to be the better coach. Matt Rule, Joe Judge, nobody knows. And, of course, there's always concerns with first-time head coaches. But, again, he was with two of the greatest coaches of all time. We all know that. So under Saban and Belichick and what he did during that time and how his former coaches spoke of him and the fact that he's used to winning. He won three Super Bowls already in the NFL, part of that. So there's reservations, but I really do feel a lot of confidence. And on Thursday, we saw what was one of the most monumental introductory press conferences we've ever seen from Judge, and it wasn't just talk. You know, he praised his past coaches, most importantly, Belichick and Saban. But Judge, I feel, is his own man with plans of being a teacher, which I think that all resonated with us a lot. We like that idea of teaching. And he clearly is that old school kind of disciplinarian. He's a visionary. And he's steadfast on bringing back respectability to the Giants. And former players felt a reminiscence of Tom Coughlin and that winning mindset of Belichick and Saban. And as he said, he will do his due diligence on building his coaching staff. And we got the news last night. I think he made a good decision already, choosing his defensive coordinator, Patrick Graham. And I like that it's his choice, it's his guy. And he looks to be a very solid decision with his, you know, he had already a tenure with the Giants as our D-line coach from 2016 and 17 under McAdoo. And his time with the Patriots as defensive line coach and linebacker coach, where he was part of, of a Super Bowl uh, with Judge. That's where the tie is. So, you know, with all of that combined, I feel good about it. He's not just he hasn't always just been in college. He has that taste. He has that experience of the NFL. Hey, Christine, how are you? Good, good. Now, I, I think one of the most impressive things about Judge is that when you look at his line of work and the people he worked for, obviously, like we've, we've been talking about, how he got the job with Alabama, he, he, he went, as him and Saban had uh, some people in common, and Saban said, you can come aboard and you can be an analyst, a special teams analyst, not necessarily on the field, but what he did was he helped design the plays for their special teams unit. He helped organize game film. He helped go through and pick, pick out weaknesses of the other team. These are all things that Saban and Belichick did themselves in their first jobs. That's how they got. You know, Belichick first joined the NFL. He did that for the Colts and uh, Ted Marchabroda in the mid-'70s. So he was, he's groomed that way to be a, like a gym rat, somebody who just studies and is so intense and is so prepared for everything uh, that can come his way. I mean, you have uh, just statements from, from Nick Saban alone. Uh, they are getting an extremely smart football coach who is very loyal, organized, and diligent about getting the job done. 
uh, we wish Joe very well. Uh, and uh, Belichick says the same thing. He said he did an excellent job. Uh, and this is a guy who, for the, the, the Patriots special teams this year, they led the league in average field position for them and for opponent field position as far as best and worst. So he's done just in his experience with what he's been given, has done a very good job. Absolutely. But, I mean, everything we can say, and I said it wasn't just talk. You could see he was, he's going to be great with the media, too. Mm-hmm. Very smart. You know, we hear all these words. Everybody has a lot of confidence in him and nothing but rave reviews for him. So now we just have to wait and see, and we get our first opportunity with free agency. Mm-hmm. What is he going to do there? What's going to happen in the draft? And free agency is going to be very, very key for the Giants right. this year. I know I have a few guys on my list that I'd like. I'd like to fit in on that, those decisions. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, that's going to really dictate what we do in the draft. And I, I'd like to also say that it's pretty clear that we should trade down to get those extra picks. And yeah. perhaps the team will come up to get to us. Okay. So yeah, that that, that, that's what I... That's what I wanted to ask you. So you are in the boardroom now. You are with Judge uh, and uh, Gettleman, and you have to design a game plan for the offseason. What are our needs? What, what are our free agent needs? What are our draft needs? Uh, how would you go about uh, advising them? What would uh, some of your game plans be? I know you shared some of it a little bit, but uh, let's pretend yeah. that you are in the boardroom. You are, at the, you are at the chalkboard. You have the chalk in your hand. Go. <laughs> Okay, that's my dream, first of all. Thank uh-huh. you. Um, so, yeah, starting March 11th, let's get right to it. As you know, and I've said many, many times before, and I've written in my Giant Insider articles for a long time, offensive line, offensive line, offensive line. Mm-hmm. Number one, free agent on my radar, Jack Conklin mm. of the Tennessee Titans. He can replace Nate Solder, or he can play, you know, he can play wherever you need him, right tackle, but I see him replacing Nate Solder. Number two, Anthony Costanzo, offensive tackle from the Colts. So those are two, two guys that I think are priority in free agency, and that gives us more flexibility in the draft to go after someone like from Alabama, uh, Jerry Judy a wide receiver that is desperately needed. But mm-hmm. if I can just backtrack a little bit on the other side of the ball. Defense, number one, we saw him last night, the baby and clowny of the Seahawks. Gotta, we have to, you know, this, this guy is going to be a free agent, and I'm sorry. I see him in a Giants uniform very clearly. Mm. <laughs> a second uh-huh. uh, option, uh, Yannick uh, Noguku. Correctly, uh, from uh, this is like George. This is like George Bush at a press conference, going with the names. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and thirdly, a, a beast that we saw this weekend on the 49ers, Eric Armstead. Uh, Eric Armstead is a total game changer. So offensive, uh, offensive line, and then addressing the defense, and also if you look at linebackers, number one, Dante Fowler, Jr. from the Rams. Mm-hmm. Second, Bud Dupree from the Steelers, and inside linebacker Corey Littleton from the Rams. So, and you know, here's something just on the radar too. 
A.J. Green has been hurt. We know that. But he's A.J. Green. And taking a possible chance on him, I know he missed a year, but look who he is. So just someone to kind of keep in your back pocket, you know. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, too. So, so now you, you know you have Judge coming in here with, uh, with, uh, with Jones, okay, who, who had an up-and-down kind of year. That we, we talked about it and length about his ability to hold on to the ball, not fumble as much as he did. Uh, did, did an okay job. Or, you know, obviously, reading the field, I think, is one of his real strengths. Um, mm-hmm. Now, working with you, you got, you got Barkley there, who had a great rookie year, and because of, obviously, the problems on the offensive line, his ability to stay healthy, uh, what do you look at as far as getting him another weapon? You mentioned Judy. Is there somebody else that on the Giants right now you think that can develop into something better uh, as, a, as a receiver? Or do you think that basically uh, you've got to wait out a couple drafts or, or really search for another guy uh, that could come in and, and help right away? Mm-hmm. Again, the offensive line, I'm sorry to be repetitive, but we have to build that offensive line. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm talking about I'm talking about skill Barkley. position players. I'm, t- I'm talking about wide receivers. Uh, is there somebody you see on a roster that you, you think that? Uh, Layton. Okay. Layton is definitely seems to have the best communication with him. They seem to be on the same page. So I would say Slayton, but I am concerned. I don't know what's happening with Sterling Shepard with his concussion history. So he's a really good wide receiver. Is he that next level? I don't know. But Jerry Judy is somebody that I think if we can build the team through free agency in the draft, it will open us to getting a wide receiver, him particularly. (laughs) And looking at the draft, too, with our great number four pick, my guy, Andrew Thomas. Mm -hmm. Off of the lineman from Georgia. And Jedrick Wills Jr. is another hot name out there from Alabama. Alabama. Yep. Alabama, I always say, Alabama, Clemson, there's just so much talent. That's right. You know, we'll also have to see how the combine goes because that will help determine, you know, our choices. And then also in in the draft, um, we can also look at a cornerback who's hot out there too, Jeff Akuda from Ohio State, Mm -hmm. Isaiah Simmons from Clemson, who we'll see tonight in the big game. Mm -hmm. He's a – he could be a safety, a linebacker, but Jerry Judy is a great route runner, he and is. I can, I can see him mm-hmm. really being a game changer for the Giants next season. And mm-hmm. you know what we, like I said, what we do in free agency starting March 11th will impact our decisions in the draft mm-hmm. and the coaching staff too. So we'll come together. So, Christine Furco, Giants Insider Magazine, where you can read her, at Christine Furco on Twitter. A lot of good information if you are a Giants fan or just an NFL fan, but, you know, interested in learning the ins and outs of the Giants. Christine does a great job. There, Christine, you just led right into my next question. Free agency, how important it is. You laid out your outline, offensive line, getting a pass rusher and some linebackers on the defensive side. Obviously, the man who will be signing and, and grading and making these moves is Dave Gettleman, the, the general manager. Mm-hmm. He was retained by the Giants, right? I think that was a question yeah, move yeah. by a lot of Giants fans. I personally, me and Mark kind of talked. I thought that the Giants should have cleaned house and got rid of Gettleman with Sherman, kind of had a nice restart. They did not. They kept him. So now Joe Judge would be paired with Dave Gettleman. Did you like the move mm-hmm. to keep Gettleman? I think he deserved. Obviously, he's had a nice draft. Free agency, is, it's been completely night and day when it comes to free agency and it comes to his drafting skills. Did you like the decision to keep a Dave Gettleman? I'm going to trust 
in what Joe Judge said, and I don't. I think he was being totally transparent. I don't think they were just words, and he feels comfortable with him, and they're going to make decisions together. And maybe Joe Judge will bring out the best <laughs> Gettleman. And look, it's not my decision, but Gettleman saved his own job, you know, getting Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley. And I know it's easy to lay out all the negatives that he's done, but he has made some positive changes to the team. So let's trust in that and see what the unity with Joe Judge brings. So, yes. I am okay with it. Do I love it? No, but I, I really feel that Joe Judge is going to solidify the relationship and bring out the best. And last one, at least for me, Christine, obviously, like you said, the Joe Judge interview really sold a lot of Giants fans. I think it got a lot of Giants fans' hopes up. For 2020, obviously, I mean, the Giants had the fourth overall picks. We, we know that obviously 2019 ended nowhere close to what they were hoping for, what Pat Shermer was hoping for. What are some reasonable expectations going? Obviously, that depends on free agency and draft, but, I mean, is is the goal to be eight and eight next year? Is the goal to be maybe even six and nine or six and ten, seven and nine? Like like what is a reasonable expectation, at least right now, on January thirteenth, obviously still a lot of questions, still a lot of players to add going to the twenty twenty season. Oh, well, you know <laughs> we wanna we're definitely gonna do better than we did last year. So I mean reasonable I'd like to be ten and six, but if we're eight and eight, maybe that's more realistic. We'll have to get back to me after the draft and the free agency. Okay, we'll have you on right after the draft. There. Like you said, then we'll have a better expectation uh, we'll roster-wise and be better from yeah. there. Yeah, but don't forget, it's the NFC East, and, you know, we have an opportunity here. And if I can just say one more thing, uh, offensive coordinator. I know everyone, when they hear the name Jason Garrett, you know, they want to throw up. But we're not talking about head coach. The head coach has been chosen. But he has my vote as offensive coordinator. He's been in the division. He was head coach of Dallas. Is he a good head coach? No, I don't think so. Clearly, Jerry Jones was pulling the strings. But as offensive coordinator, offensive coordinators are sometimes great at their jobs and not great head coaches. I like the idea of somebody that's been in our division. He knows Dallas. He knows the Eagles. He knows the Redskins. It can only be a plus. So, I don't know. There's talk about Freddie Kitchens, as we all know, and we'll see what happens. But I think Jason Garrett is a good choice. Uh, Christine, you, you mentioned about uh, the, the game tonight. Who do you have uh, going tonight? Who, who, who are you picking to be the winner? <sighs> you know, I'm agonized about this. I think I'm going to go with LSU. Joe Burrow is just and I love Trevor Lawrence, too. Uh, we'll see how their defenses do, but I'm going to give the edge to LSU. How about you guys? Yeah, I, I think it's hard not to choose LSU. I, I, I thought that the two best teams by far in the regular season were Ohio State and LSU, okay? And Clemson, I thought, got kind of skated by with their conference. You didn't know how good they were because they're in such a weak conference. And they definitely, after that scare against North Carolina, they really dominated their opponents. So, and, and Trevor Lawrence, early in the year, you saw some kind of weaknesses, but he developed really well. So they were such an unknown going into that game against Ohio State that I, I didn't have the confidence that they could beat Ohio State. 
and they got behind early, but they were able to stay in the game by holding Ohio State to field goals when they were in the red zone. And then you saw that they were able to find their game plan and then take over in the second half. And then also, Clemson really does a good job at forcing mistakes, and you saw that kind of in uh, Ohio State's last drive, where Justin Fields thought he saw something. He didn't, guy w- didn't, didn't cut the right way, and that led to the interception. Clemson you, makes you uh, make those kind of decisions. So I right. think that's going to be a real challenge for LSU and for Burrow. I def- definitely don't think Burrow's going to throw for seven touchdowns in the first half. No. Uh, you know, uh, but, you know, the, I think there's really what, – what a wonderful matchup. I mean, you know, I, I was talking to one of my friends about expanding, possibly expanding the college football playoff. And, uh, you know, he, he said, well, why, why would you? I mean, you have exactly what you want here. This is what everybody was hoping for was a matchup like this. Um, now, what, what guys – what other guys – you mentioned Judy, obviously, uh, as a, a big-time player. I know Henry Ruggs is another big-time wide receiver – uh, that's probably going to go in the first round. Devonta Smith was another one, too, but he's staying in Alabama. What other players tonight specifically are you going to be looking at? Well, all I can tell you is there's a lot of NFL talent that's going to be on the field tonight. So we'll take it from there. There's going to be a lot. Well, Christine, it's always a pleasure to have you on. <laughs> uh, you're always uh, well-informed, well-prepared, and uh, it's, a, it's an absolute joy to have you on talk about the NFL, talk about the Giants. Uh, and uh, to get your little insight on tonight's uh, national championship game. Uh, anytime uh, you want to come by and join us for a chat, you are more than welcome. And uh, once again, thank you for your time on this Monday morning. Thank you, Christine. Thank you. Thank you. That is Christine Furco, Giants Insider Magazine. Uh, she said it perfectly. There's a lot of NFL talent on the field tonight, Mark. It is, I'm so excited uh, for the national championship game. And like I said, the Joe Judge hiring, I think, that press conference really sold a lot of Giants fans on why he was a choice, and more importantly, why the Giants are so enamored with Judge after really not hearing his name ever. I think even Patriots fans wouldn't even know who Joe Judge was unless they were truly diehard fans. So that's why you could see why he commands the room and just really impressed with his, his opening press conference. And you think at least the Giants are in good hands moving forward. So, Mark, how about this? When we come back, we just hit on with Christine. The national championship is tonight. LSU Clemson, 14 overs, 14 0 in the Superdome to the best teams uh, in college football this year. Talking about what we're thinking, who has the advantage, who who will win, and to your point as well, can LSU, I mean, just been absolute gangbusters this season. Can they finish it off and have one of the – and can they – LSU has a chance tonight to have the best season that any college football team has ever had, and Joe Burrow has a chance to finish off the best single season any college football player has ever had. A lot of, on the line for both LSU and Clemson. I will get you – uh, some things to watch. I'll give you our picks as well. It is Ryan Hickey, Mark Ever Kelly with you right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're listening to the Morning Boys on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Great suggestion, pressure by Billy Joel here. Why is pressure? Because guess what tonight, Mark? National Championship. Two really storied programs right now have a chance to really cap off just an incredible run. Clemson on a 29-game winning streak have a chance to send that to 30 tonight and complete back-to-back 15-0 seasons. 
No team's ever gotten 15-0 in the college football era. Clemson obviously was the first one to do that last week. Or, excuse me, last week. Last year. <laughs> and now they have a chance to back that up with a second straight national title and a second straight 15-game, 15-0 season as they take on LSU number one in the nation. And obviously, I mean, Mark, LSU's been the Cinderella, the darling of the college football season. Joe Brady's burst on the scene. Or Joe Brady. Joe Brady has helped Joe Burrow burst mm-hmm. on the scene. Joe Brady comes in really two Joes that no one really was either on the radar or kind of knew too Not much too about. Not ordinary Joes. No, oh no. They are every, anything but average Joes as they come in and just absolutely take LSU to a level offensively they've never seen before in their storied history. It's 14-0 against 14-0 again tonight in the Superdome. Um, so let's, let's just start with this then, Mark. Who has the advantage, right? Because I think that's a, a really hard question to answer because – Every, every kind of either whether you look at talent on the field, metric, uh, in terms of stat-wise, everything is pretty much even. LSU has some great things that they do really well. LSU has – I mean, excuse me, Clemson has also great things that they do really, really well. Both teams are elite in certain categories that kind of you would think balance each other out. I feel like it's kind of tough to definitively say Clemson has an advantage or LSU has an advantage. Do you have either which way sort of lean that you're kind of picking at least tonight in terms of you think this team – has at least one step ahead of the other, or no? I mean, they could be completely even. It's 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 so hard because you didn't know for a long time how good Clemson was this year. Okay, you knew how good they were beating Alabama last year, which I think everyone remembered going into this the regular season. So you had most of their offensive players coming back. A lot of their defensive players left via the draft. And how is their defense going to be? You saw their defense was pretty good this season, but. What kind of competition did it? But that's what everybody said. Who are they playing? And I, I understand that that is an obvious question when you're dealing with the ACC, especially compared to some of the other teams uh, in the top ten that they were going up against all season. And uh, you remember they started the season as a number one ranked team, and yeah. they, they didn't lose, and they dropped down to as far as four, I believe, at one point during the regular five. season. Well, college football playoff, they were number five. Remember Penn State yeah, number right, four, exactly. and they were – so it's like, right, they were from number one all the way to number five at one point. Uh-huh. And the most points that they allowed during the regular season, they only allowed 20 points once during the regular season, and that was to North Carolina. All right? Every other game they allowed 14, uh, well, including the, the game against uh, Virginia and the, uh, the AC championship, they allowed 17. But every other game that's they allowed cr- 14 that. or less. All right, so their defense definitely did a great job against the competition they had, which is really the only thing you can judge them on. And then against Ohio State, which had a dynamic offense. And you saw Justin Fields and, and, and some of those guys, uh, the wide receiver that set the record, I think he broke, um, he broke the, the, uh, David Boston's record, I think, for most uh, receptions in his season. K.J. Hill? Yeah, K.J. Hill. Um, Stud. So J.K. Dobbins. Stud. I yeah, I mean, they, they, they just had uh, weapons all over the place. And – they could not get the job done in the red zone, something they did all year. Uh, you know, and even getting off to a good start, Ohio State's defense was something that could force you into mistakes, and once they get a lead, really put the pressure on you. The only game that Ohio State really struggled after they had a lead was you know, kind of allowing Penn State back into the game a little bit. You know? But even in that game, you kind of knew who the winner was going to be. Maybe there was like, a, like uh, one possession where – got kind of you know sketchy but Ohio State really dominated teams so they were a very good team it's not like people oh Ohio State Ohio State was very good okay so losing to Clemson isn't 
isn't as embarrassing, you know, for Ohio State because Clemson's very, very good, and they could be the best team. And if they beat LSU, you see exactly how good they were. Can I ask you a question? Because yep. you brought up a point, and I think that was a, a lot of the narrative from a lot of media members, and even just fans, too, going to the playoff, right? You said it. We, a lot of people question Clemson and how good they are because of the competition they played. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's no argument. They had one of the easiest schedules all college football. The ACC was absolute hot garbage this year. Oh, yeah. And, you know, to, uh, they scheduled Texas A&M to the p- – but their point is, like, you can't always – you know, at least with your conference, you can only control yeah. so much. Right. You can't really so do anything Even about Al- Alabama this year. The SEC was a little down this year right. in the West. Right. You know? so, so, right. I mean, that it's, it's cyclical. And, obviously, historically this year, ACC overall was one of the worst we've ever seen. But so, so you're point, right. I think a lot of people were questioning Clemson. How good are they? Because sure, yeah, they they crushed everyone. But I mean, who's really like North Carolina, Wake Forest, mm. Florida State? Like no one is really that good in the ACC. There's really no second team that stood out anywhere close to any other conference, right? But can I ask you this? Because you you just hit on. It. I think that's why we shouldn't be cl- questioning Clemson at all. Is this especially specifically on offense? They returned essentially every single player that was on that team that destroyed Notre Dame destroyed Alabama, and that Alabama defense was yeah. supreme. That Alabama team overall was a juggernaut. Absolutely. No one saw what happened last year coming. No. Their defense was nowhere close to what it was this year. And so you return basically everyone that made an impact on offense last year, this year, right? Even defense, right? They graduate the defensive line, which was just historic and record-breaking in their own sense for a full defensive line, and they were just – they'll go down in Clemson lore, right, as one of the best units to ever play – in for, for the Tigers. But they still returned Isaiah Simmons, who's a stud. Their secondary is still pretty loaded. So it's just like, sure, like we can easily say, oh, they graduated the defense line. How good can they be this year? But it's just it's funny because we, cl- we questioned Clemson. And I was in this too because I was in the, in the boat where if they lost, they, they were out of the playoff to me. Like, there's no excuse for a team to lose a game with what their schedule was. They would have been out. But it's just so funny that we, we continue to question Clemson, but it's like, they already are battle tested. Sure, not not this year. And again, maybe you know things change from year to year. But let's not forget, like Notre Dame was a pretty solid team last year. They just manhandled them. And this year, you know, or and then the championship game, they just absolutely blew past Alabama. And that was with a true freshman receiver and Justin Ross. That was still with Trevor Lawrence as a true freshman. Like these guys only got older and more experienced. So sure, they played nobody for the first thirteen games of the year. But that experience, I think, does carry over when you play in big time games, blowing everyone out like they did. And it's just funny that it's like LSU obviously has – like they have the resume, right? Clemson's a talent. LSU has the resume to back up. They have all these win over top ten teams. They beat Oklahoma. They beat Georgia. They beat Florida, Alabama, right? Like we, we know their resume and we don't have to run through it. But they are at least bad test. So it's just funny that Clemson has this doubt, although they basically have the same resume as LSU just a year prior. But everyone still returns. Like that experience doesn't change just because they beat Alabama last year in a superior – an elite Alabama team last year doesn't mean that all of a sudden they forgot how to play in big games and will get sucked in by the moment. I just want to point that out because I, I fell victim to it too this year at one point. And it's just like I was just thinking about it after the Ohio State game. It's like they were tur- – like offensively, Justin Ross, T. Higgins, Travis Etienne, Trevor Lawrence, like these guys were all here last year. Mm-hmm. And they dominated last yeah. year. It's like wh- what are we questioning them for? Yeah. It's just, I just want to point that out because, again, I think we, a lot of us, including my, myself included, absolutely fell victim into this line of thinking. And then it's just like, wait a second. It's it's Clemson. It's Dabo Sweeney. Like this, like this program has been in big games and they won big games. Mm-hmm. But well, I, I I think that look you you mentioned it. The biggest kind of question people had about Clemson 
Uh, obviously, it was their schedule because they played in the ACC, but how was their defense going to stand up? You saw last year against a unbelievable Alabama offense that could light up anybody, and they were able to force them into making mistakes. That was one of the things that shocked me the most is you would see them. You, you saw Nick Saban kind of being outcoached, and that was like the first, like, what? You didn't expect that. You know, uh, this year when it happened, you know, when, when Malzahn kind of, you know, w was able to manipulate some things, especially toward the end of the game. Right. Malzahn the did fake, it. not fake pump, but the yeah. formation that threw him off. You're right. It was a great, great job at Malzahn. Uh, I thought the, you know, the play at the end of the first half, that was just outright cheating. But uh, it's still, it, 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 you normally don't see Saban unprepared like that. But it wasn't that he was unprepared. It was that the other coach, you know, Malzahn really did his homework and was able to, okay, if this situation happens, this is what we're going to do. Not everybody does that. So going into uh, the season, people questioned Clemson's defense. Now, this year, they finished first in points per game, 10.6. They finished first in yards per game, 244.7. They were a little bit better than Ohio State in both categories, just to give you an idea how great Ohio State was. So, and offensively, they were third behind LSU and U U uh, UCF as far as yards. Mm -hmm. And they were right up there as far as points. Uh, only LSU averaged more points. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, great. I, like, we, we both talked about it, right? Like, statistically, LSU, especially offensively, leads a lot of categories. Clemson is right there. They are right there yeah, in every third. category. And defensively, same thing. They it's were like, third behind. Right. Uh, you had LSU, Alabama. Excuse me, fourth. LSU, Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, as far as points per game. Yeah, I mean, you have, you, you know, you know how good LSU is. You right. know how great Alabama is offensively. I mean, there were no questions about those two teams offensively this year. And Ohio State, you saw how dominant they were offensively. Nobody made a mention of Clemson offensively. Nobody made a mention of Clemson defensively because of the opponents they were playing. But then you saw their ability to shut down. Uh, the third-ranked offense in college football yeah. and hold them to basically field goals and then force them into mistakes. I mean, when you're watching that game and you, you know everything that's on the line, you see everybody there. I mean, uh, Urban Meyer, you saw him like on the sideline, like you know, intensely watching. And for a moment, like that's what you makes sports worth watching is – a drive like that, and they got down to where they were in the red zone again, and Justin Fields misreads what his wide receiver is going to do. And yeah, I talked about that with Christine. Sometimes you get forced into those things. Sometimes coaches prepare their players to say, if you see this, I want you to show this, and then that's going to happen. Now, the wide receiver and, and the quarterback kind of had a miscommunication, but I think a lot of things that happened during that game uh, Clemson was able to figure out some things and put that type of uh, formation in. So maybe they gave him a look and the wide receiver read it the wrong way. You never know kind of what could happen. But I think Clemson sets, them, sets you up for stuff like that. And that's why they're so good, well coached. That's why Dabo's such a great coach. And that's why everything they've earned is really well deserved. And I haven't given them enough credit because they're in the ACC. And because you don't see them beat really good teams like they did on December 28th. Well, now you get another chance to see them do that tonight. And if they're able to beat LSU, which has absolutely lit up everybody except for Auburn, 
All right, everybody else, they, you know, including Oklahoma, which Oklahoma had not much of a defense, but to do the performance they had against Oklahoma where it didn't even look like they were a Division One team, I mean, they just absolutely murdered them. It was, it was almost so you're like saying seven touchdown passes in the first half is, is bad I mean, for a defense. Is, how, that, is that good? Is that, I, good? I, 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 that might be a little suspect. But this was a team that lost one game Yep. Oklahoma. And I, I know they weren't the best defense, but that was really impressive, okay, what Burrow did. Now, even winning the Heisman Trophy, to me, I thought – how good is this guy really? He's kind of only one year of really putting up dominant stuff. He, last year he wasn't. There was such a jump as far as uh, how good he was. So maybe there's something I, I needed to see more. I don't know. But definitely I didn't expect that because you saw them light up the SEC. Maybe that should have been my first time. Well, he light up everyone in the SEC. This guy's pretty good. So if he can do that against Clemson, which is really the best defense he's going to face – until he gets to the pros. Really? Okay. Well, I mean, but who, what other defenses? I think you faced three already that are better. Than Clemson? Yeah. As far as this year? Yeah. Well, I mean, statistically, Clemson's defense is. is Florida, Georgia, Auburn? Yeah. I would oh, yeah. put those three ahead of Yeah, no, Clemson. right. I mean, you, you, you definitely. Or on the they, same level, at yeah, least. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, but as far as, like, st- statistics, um, whether or not it had to do with the conference or whatever, Clemson has been able to dominate whoever they play, okay, and, and including Ohio State. So I think that this is going to be a real challenge for him. That, you know, playing in the SEC, you kind of get, you know, used to seeing game tape and understanding, you know, what coaches do, and maybe that kind of helped him in the games against those teams. But this is going to be something, his first, like, real challenge. You saw what they did to Alabama. So if they can do that to them, you, you, you never know. So if, if he comes through this game and – if he has any type of game like he had against Oklahoma, then he'll have proven himself. I don't expect that. But, I mean, all season, this is what we waited for. Yeah, oh, you yeah. Know? And um, I know you and I had talked about the Big Ten, and uh, I felt like the Big Ten would be uh, – would, would kind of have a lot of answers if – or a lot of questions if they lost that game. And uh, as a conference – if they still can deserve to be ranked up there with the SEC or, or you know, how um, other people would look at them as far as being uh, deserving the type of season they had, which I thought the Big Ten this year clearly was the best conference in college football. When you look at all the teams, when you look at how they did, when you look at Ohio State was so good during the regular season and represented that conference well. Um, and because they didn't beat Clemson, there's going to be a little bit of still a question about that. Is the Big Ten worthy of that type of discussion? I know you didn't. You thought one game maybe it's not fair, and um, I still think that the Big Ten, because they lost that game, they there is some dissatisfaction with everybody else in the, in the college football world as far as well. The big boys really are in the SEC, and we'll see. I mean, if Clemson comes out and they get spanked by LSU, then that won't look good for for Ohio State. But if Clemson beats LSU, then that argument maybe isn't as strong as it as it should be. And this is why I disagree. Um, first of all, I think that by far everyone agrees in this in this statement. Tell me if you disagree, you can let me know. But I think this is the general consensus. There was three elite teams this year. There's three yep. teams in their own class: LSU, yep. 
Clemson, Ohio State, yep. right? Everyone else is second tier. Yep. No one's close. Absolutely, yep. So to me, at least, to be in that upper echelon just alone, mm-hmm. let's just say Clemson loses 70 nothing tonight, just to put one extreme out there. To me, like, that does has, to me, personally, has no bearing or no effect on how I view Ohio State, mm-hmm. how I view that Clemson-Ohio State game. Because I saw two teams, championship-level, elite-level, battling out, going back and right. forth, throwing haymakers right. each way. Right. Like, to me, I, if anything, I was even more impressed with right. Ohio State coming out of that game for how well they are. You see how close they are. Right. That's the thing in college football that is growing now, too, which is a little bit of a concern, is that the talent gap is starting to accumulate at the top, and there is starting to be a significant gap that is building yeah. between the top programs that invest yeah. money, recruiting, coach, like that basically put football first. You're right. Right? A lot of those teams have to be in the SEC. A lot of them have their priorities where we want to have football first. If that's going, everything else can kind of fall into line and, and go yeah. from there if that are second fiddle. <laughs> there are plenty to, you know, Michigan is Damn academics, we don't care. <laughs> right? Michigan, exactly. Michigan is an example of where they value their academics. Notre Dame is another example where they put academics first no matter what. Football being good, sure. And, you know, we'll do what we can to make sure the football team is good, but we're not going to jeopardize or prioritize money for the football coach, for their facilities, over right. academics and whatever we can do to keep right. our – National standing for academics, right? I think mm-hmm. that's fair to say. Other schools, and I'm not throwing it, but it's just true. Alabama, Clemson, some of the schools in the SEC are more interested, even Ohio State with some of the hirings and, you know, the all-in they go, are more interested in football games. And that's just, you know, that starts on the top down and just their philosophy. So to me, so I say all that to say this. Mm-hmm. The gap is growing, right? I, I think there's a legitimate gap where you have, you know, Clemson, Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama, you, I'll put Oklahoma in there, but you have basically five or six teams every year. You no matter what, there will be LSU's in there that are going to be at the top recruiting-wise and at the top of the playoff discussion every year. Mm-hmm. Now, most of those teams, half of them I just mentioned, will be in from the SEC. So to me at least, I am more impressed with Ohio State because they not only played in the upper echelon, because we've seen them before get blown out and just not belong on that stage. I think the Ohio State program itself, the program itself is closing the gap and are in that conversation with Alabama, with Clemson, with Georgia every year to be like in terms of, you know, nationally respected, a national elite power every single year. Teams like Penn State, teams like Florida, even Auburn, I would say, you know, other Oregon, Texas, like teams are in that second category that aren't there yet. But that gap is only getting harder to achieve. So to me, at least for Ohio State, to, I say again, a long-winded answer saying this. Ohio State to go toe-to-toe, mm. have Clemson on the ropes. Again, one of those you know, catches that were dropped in the end zone turns into a touchdown instead of a field goal. Chris Olave, you know, again, it, it seemed like he thought that Justin Fields was a scramble drill, and that's why he broke left, and Justin Fields was still in the pocket. That's why he threw right interception. Right. One of those things goes the other way. Ohio State wins that game. Right. To me, at right. least, like that, it's not reflective of the Big Ten just because the Big – like. The talent gap is with teams. It's not with conferences. I still think the Big Ten, win or lose, Clemson gets blown out or they blow out LSU. To me, the Big Ten is still firmly cemented as, in terms of conference-wise, number two. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the conversation really is, is turning more towards, instead of conferences, in terms of elite, like it's going to be teams. Mm-hmm. Like we saw the ACC. The ACC, a good point. the ACC is going to get zero credit right. and deserves zero right. credit right. if Clemson blows oh, out right. LSU. You know what I mean? Like yeah. We're not going to prop up Virginia, no, Miami, Florida State because Clemson blew, like, oh, wow. They, they both got blown out by 70 points. That means LSU and That's Florida a, State are not that far away. That's a good point. It's just the, the ACC stinks. And unfortunately, now, again, because that talent is really starting to become top-heavy, you see Clemson recruiting nationally. You see you know, like the, these, national, these right. five or six teams that are going to get three-quarters of the top 100 talent every year. Right. 
That's where the separation is. So it's not going to be a conference-by-conference conference separation. It's going to be a team-by-team team separation. And now it's what team can climb to that elite category and stay there. I think to me, Ohio State, I think they were in that before this game against Clemson. Do they firmly cement to themselves as a place going toe-to-toe with the defending national champions with all the talent, recruiting talent, coaching talent that Clemson has? Ohio State, to me, at least proved that they were there with that performance. So that's why Monday night, or I should say tonight, has no bearing personally to me on the Big Ten standing in the college football and Ohio State standing in college football. Because um, I think, th- again, the gap is more going to be between teams now than it will be between conferences. Let me ask you this, though. Mm-hmm. Speaking of LSU Clemson, right? The game is in ba- uh, in New Orleans, f- about an hour from Baton Rouge. So, obviously, you're gonna, it's going to be Clemson. It's going to be, excuse me, LSU heavy. Right? Like maybe 75-20, maybe an 80-20 split in terms of in the building, fan-wise rooting for LSU, but rooting for Clemson. To your point, Clemson has been battle-tested, you know, this is their fourth national title game appearance in five years. Debo Sweeney's been there. A lot of these players have been there. Does a, we never really see a national championship like this, or we rarely do, I should say, that has such a distinct home field advantage for one of the teams in it, right? Last year in Santa Clara, LSU, or Alabama, Clemson, split. I mean, a lot of these are split. Now you have distinct home field advantage for LSU. Does that play a factor at all? Or, or kind of make it harder to pick Clemson because it, they're, like, they're basically playing a road game, right? Dabo Sweeney said the other day, they might as well play in Tiger Stadium. And we always talk about, too, college, I think you'll agree on this, too. College football is a sport where the, I think the fans at home field has the best atmosphere and have the biggest impact. Is that, is that fair to say? College sports in general, right? I, I think it's more impactful than any, any pro arena or stadium. So at least that's how I believe. If you feel that way, too, yeah, so it maybe I, has it. I think there's truth behind that, yeah. Do you, how much do you play home field advantage having a factor in tonight's game? Well, I, I think they, they limit, obviously, they limit the amount of tickets each school can get, so it's not as... Right, but then it's, the, right, right. Each, yeah. So let's say Clemson gets 3,000, LSU gets 3,000, yeah. they sell those to their fans. Right. Like, but after that, it's all the general public. Yeah. And you've got to assume right, a you lot assume of people that more, buying right. up. But Clemson travels really well. I mean, it's not like they're that far. It's, you know, it's, you know, maybe five, six hours, I guess, from, from where they are. You know, probably, probably longer than that. I'm, I'm bad with that type of thing. I'm with you, too. Uh, I, mean, I don't know what Clemson, yeah. South Carolina, and New Orleans. I don't. Uh, yeah, South, South Carolina, uh, with Clemson and South Carolina, they're, they're close to Georgia, so uh, they're only about half an hour from Georgia. So t- to get down to New Orleans, I, I can't imagine it's more than like six, seven hours. I, I don't know. But, I mean, again, it's but not, yeah, in, again, it's not yeah, in their backyard. Right. Yeah, it's, it's not like they can, you know. It's like just, the Giants, you know, yeah. having Super Bowl in Giant Stadium, or the Vikings almost had, a, like, sure, yeah. like, a, you know, they allot tickets for other teams. And right. But once the general public gets up, you assume a lot of the locals, especially with LSU not really being there, the, the season they had, I'm going to yeah. assume it's going to be heavy, I, heavy LSU in the States. I, I, think they, I, I think there are things lined up that maybe those types of things can't be as one-sided, but what do I know? I really? Mean, yeah, may, maybe. I, I, I don't know. As far as making, it, making tickets available, like um, – I know there are going to be a lot of people that are obviously Clemson grads and or, or follow Clemson that are going to be there uh, because of the where it is. I don't know how much of a difference that might make as far because it's easy to get tickets anywhere. So you can you know obviously get them online, whatever. I, I know that they, you know some people that that's all they plan for was going down to this game. So you know I, I don't expect there to be that big a difference, but mm-hmm. I certainly understand that you know where it is. Definitely plays to the advantage of LSU. That's obvious. Um, as far as what you said about the conference, you made you made a lot of good points about that. You, I, I think that there is a separation there between teams, and it shouldn't necessarily be 
one conference that's looked at, oh, well, they didn't get the job done in, in that case. And uh, that means that the Big Ten is no longer uh, viable as, as uh, one of the better conferences. Obviously, they are. They're clearly up there with the SEC as far as the second best conference. My only point to that was that uh, they had a chance to be to really separate themselves for the first time, really make a claim for, hey, we belong in the conversation as the best conference in college football. And Ohio State has represented them for the last five, six years as clearly the best team, uh, like you know, Alabama did for a little while, and now you know, LSU is kind of there. So I think that was their chance to really make a splash and stand out for once and kind of tell everyone who's been – you know, moaning about the Big Ten like me, um, you know, hey, shut your mouth for a little while. We deserve what we got. Um, and I, I, it's hard when you, they lose a game like that. You did have two teams that were going nose to nose, and it was, you know, it's not like they lost to a, a team they shouldn't have lost to. I mean, Clemson was very good. So I, I just think that when you have opportunities to really make that type of statement, this was their year to really do that to get to get everybody to quiet down about maybe the SEC is just the best conference and the Big Ten doesn't deserve to even be in the discussion. Uh, I think this was the year for, to really silence those critics. But anyway, um, as far as the academics and, and like institutions, it, it's no secret that for a long time there are football factories out there in college football. You know, yeah, Florida State for a long time was looked at like that, even though Bobby Bowden really did care about his players and did care if his players graduated and, you know, cared about, you know, guys going to class and all that. I, I think that that was, you know, obviously part of his program. But from the outside, it looked like they were grooming football players. Miami for a long time looked yep. like they were grooming football players. Now, I know you talked to Jimmy Johnson and guys like Michael Irvin, um, you know, especially a guy, a guy like Ray Lewis. Like, there were guys that came through there that uh, – cared about academics as well as football. When you're talking about Sweeney and Saban, I think those are two guys who run elite programs. Those are two guys who really do pay attention to their athletes. And I think the same applies to them. They hold their athletes to really strict standards. Uh, so I, I think those two schools stand out kind of as doing things the right way or as right as you can do them in college football. Uh, Georgia, I feel, is, is an institution like that a little bit too. To me, some of the lesser teams, I think, in the SEC are, are the ones that really bend the rules. And, you know, they, they, it's all mess yeah, with Hugh, Hugh Freeze, or, you yeah. know? Yeah, like so, some, I guess to catch up, maybe they feel like they have to. Well, yeah. You know? And then you have, like, the Vanderbilts, which is, like, the elite. You know, like, it's very hard to get into. They shouldn't even be right. in the, They're it should be in Ivy League. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I know South Carolina is a, is a very hard school to get into. All these schools are kind of hard to get into for an ordinary person. Uh, where maybe some lines are, draw, are, are ignored for some of the athletes, and, and that's been the case for so many different institutions. I mean, you hear Notre Dame complain about it because their academic standards are so high, and maybe they need to cut down on it to get more players. But right, that, that's, that, yeah. they're, they're not willing to do it. So like, exactly. That's, that, you know, again, and, you know, Pitt, priorities and I, are different everywhere. It's not a knock. It's just uh, Right. I, I know Penn State is, another, is, is a school very hard to get into. That's very high academic standards. But I think – Mostly all these colleges do, um, but there is a clear difference in some of them for athletes. And I think also you look at the top recruiting classes this year. Clemson's number one. 
Georgia, Alabama are tied number two. Then you have Ohio State, LSU, same teams, top five. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So they same re- teams. put all resources, dedicate resources. That's right. The, the, that's that's my point. Saying why conferences to me are like conference are not getting valued as much as teams are getting valued because the same teams are going to be up there recruiting wise every single year. So what what? So it's more do? about the teams than about the conferences. Like uh, we, uh, a friend of mine, I was talking about like. I said about expanding the college playoff, okay? And kind of his, his point was, well, what, why would you do that? You have a watered-down version. And what, okay, well, then what do, they, what do they do? To me, it's important that you're able to get teams that maybe had a letdown at one point during the, during the season, maybe early in the season, maybe middle, midway through the season. If they lost a game they shouldn't have lost, or if they had an injury to a player, maybe they get the chance to redeem themselves by getting a shot in the playoffs. So how does that happen? I, I, I think that there needs to be, a, and Saban has talked about this too, if college football should have more games. So if you had, say, each school with 14 games, okay? And because you have to play, the thing that makes it, the only reason why I say that, I, I think it could be like 12 games, but the only reason why it's got to be more is because there are schools like, you know, uh, Cupcake State that depend on playing against the certain teams to support, like, their whole year, okay? You know, Alabama has certain got teams on their schedule that make up, like, 10 years of, of advertising and money because they play Alabama that one time. So that itself is hard to make go away. And that's the frustration, I think, with some of these coaches is because they also do schedules so far in advance that it's a little harder for them to do that. But you want to see more matchups between the conferences. So you want to see the Big Ten playing the ACC more. You want to see Clemson coming in and playing Georgia. You want to see Alabama going and playing you know, Michigan or, or Penn State. You want to see more of that. So if they were able to do that, you could either you know, just have a realignment of the conferences, which will never happen because of the money involved and because of how hard it is for teams to get into conferences, or you can expand the regular season, and open up two more slots for those types of games. And then you would have mandatory, each top five school would have to play one other, two other conferences. So Alabama would have to play a game against the ACC and the Pac-12, or you know, one of, uh, you know, two of the five top conferences, okay? And I, I think that would make it definitely more interesting, it would kind of level out so even if you lost one or two games, you'd be able to expand the playoff system to, I think it should be 16 teams. because it, you, 16? It, well, just like it is in, in the subdivision. So, I, look, y- you would have a definitely much more interesting product if that was the case because you could not be so devastated by what like, – I, I don't think it'll, it'll change the importance of the regular season because you still have to do well in your conference in order to uh, be a team that's worthy of getting in that. But I think it opens the door for those little schools that complain all the time, well, you know, we don't get our chance. You know, they, they, the, the teams from, you know, the lower conferences that might go undefeated or like a, like a Florida Atlantic or somebody like that who complain about they want their time to get in there. Well, you give them their shot. You know, by opening it up like that, you give them their shot. Then they'll get to play a team 
who's nationally ranked and who's you know undefeated. And if they're undefeated, they then you, they get to see how good they are. And if they get blown out, then you find out. But I, I think that'll give those types of teams a chance, like the NCAA tournament. You know, you have the teams from the lower conferences get a shot. They don't win much, but they get a shot to do that. And they had to expand it to 64. Now we'll have it 69 or 68 teams. 68. So I think that you've had expansion over the years. It, it hasn't really hurt the product. College basketball, it's still a, probably one of the most exciting things that happened during the regular season is, is, the, is the tournament. So I think if you put that in college football, along with making the regular season a little bit more exciting by seeing some of these matchups, I think that would really help. Yeah, I mean, just to quickly hit on that, I think eight games to me is perfect. It's inherently flawed when you have a four-team system with five power conferences. It's ridiculous that one, no matter what, one team gets left out. Like this year, let's just say for argument's sake, mm-hmm. it's never happened. But it's only six years, so things can still – but if Oregon, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Clemson, LSU are all 14-0, guess who's getting left out? Clemson. You know why? Because they have the least amount of – they have the worst resume. Yeah. Everyone's undefeated, but guess what? You're telling one team, sorry, you're not included, despite doing everything you can literally right. physically do to ensure yourself in the playoff, one team's getting left out, and arguably could be the best team in the country in Clemson. Well, they I, had the I, I think this year that wouldn't happen because they're the defending champions, so they would, they would have figured out a way for them to get in there. Why? But say they weren't a national champion. The cultural playoff, that poll, when that came out, they were fifth. I know. They weren't number one. But they I weren't think even th- in the playoff. I if, think that was those four teams, right. I know Alabama and LSU were in there, mm. but – if you have five Power Five champions that are undefeated, right. they're going to go by resume. Clemson will have the worst resume of the five. And they already had the worst resume going in because the first mm. rankings, they were number five, so they couldn't do anything to improve it. Mm. Whereas you had, Oklahoma, or you had every other team playing a ranked team in their conference championship, and that would be the only time Clemson this year would play a ranked team that stayed in the rankings. And maybe even, I think Virginia may even fell out, to be honest, after that game. So they played Texas A&M. They fell out of the rankings this year. They're 7-5. So that is Texas A&M is their best win, and Virginia. But don't you think that that would happen this year? Like if they if if I, I think the reason why they put them at five is because they knew they had the rest of the season still. But but, but my point though is like with this argument that I'm making specifically, mm-hmm. they wouldn't. There's no room to make up because everyone in front of you was winning. If you had every single conference, but champion they, they would somehow go, come up with a reason for the national I don't know, championship. But why? Why? But, I don't but, know. But then yeah, okay, no, you're so right. Again, you're, you're right. Clemson it, gets it in. Let's be. say Oregon gets like let's say yeah. Oregon or Oklahoma, one of those two teams get the mm-hmm. bump. Yeah. But they, they have yeah. a better resume. Absolutely, you'd be pissed off. How? Right. right. So to me, eight is the best way to go. But that, that, that's what makes but. it so kind of confusing to begin with. Is that it, it should be more. You know, at eight. I, I would I would take eight better than four. You know, but I think if it was sixteen, you might be able to get. I think sixteen is too much. Some you, of those. You things. also it, it, maybe there's too much. You got to think about it too. You can't do twelve. You can't have more games in the NFL or similar. Like you can't have 16 games total and you can't have more than the NFL. So if no, you have 16 game play, you're going to have to eliminate regular season games because you're going to have to count for an extra two playoff games or eliminate coverage. Like you're going to have to eliminate games one way or another, regular season or coverage championships to either I mean, keep it is, there, is there some sort of rule? Uh, about, no, about but that? I mean, it's just like, you know, you're going to have well, more. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't mind. I mean, well, I mean, sure, but, you know, I mean, unfortunately actually, it comes you know, down to. It would be a lot you know, better. Our season wouldn't end in middle, I, I'm you know? with you. I love college football. If it could go all year round, I'd watch every. If it was 82 games, I'd watch every single week and be hooked. Um, but, but I mean, I what, what, how else can they do it really to make it fair or to really open up to all the teams that want a shot at winning the national championship? Eight, I think eight because you put all power five in and then have three wild cards. So sometimes 
I don't like the automatic bid for the AAC or the group of five because sometimes yeah. there's not like UCF was really the only team that had yeah. any sort it of depends argument. on the year, right? This year, uh, who was it? it? Was Memphis and Memphis is not a playoff team. So is it? Should it be one of the uh, the wild cards? What if one the of highest those teams? Ranks? Five, six, right. seven, that's, eight. That's, you know, that's four, what I was those four teams. Let's and that's why it's still people say waters down. It doesn't because, like you said, now those like those games mean more. If your team is number eight, that those last few weeks mean a lot more than they did. If you're Baylor, for example, they had an extremely outside chance to make the playoff, mm-hmm. but they were like, number eight or nine going mm-hmm. to the final. Like that game is huge now. The last few games are huge because mm-hmm. you're still in the play if you have a chance. Look at look at the NFL with the Titans. Titans would not be in the college football playoff if the NFL mm-hmm. had the same right. policy as college football. I think so they're one argument. win away and they right. have a great chance to go to the Super Bowl, maybe right. even win it. But they wouldn't even get the opportunity. It's just right. get the opportunity. I think it's kind of my argument for, for, for more, though, because you, you, you might miss a team. There, but there might be a team that's in one of those conferences that is undefeated, but they're not dominant. And then you have, a, like, a three-loss uh, Michigan team that has a great resume because they lost to three other teams in the top eight. Um, that you at least give them a shot. Like, even if they don't, on paper, as strong as Florida Atlantic this year or, or, or um, UCF this year, there's at least an opportunity for that. I think the only way you could do that is 16. Is it a little too much? Probably. Would I settle for 12 and a way to kind of break that down where you have like maybe a wild card game and then you have teams getting buys? Maybe that would be a better way to do it, you know, where you have some yeah. of those smaller conferences kind of doing that. But – I, I just think there, it would be a lot more interesting for those smaller conferences to have a shot, at least a shot, to get into with the big boys. Because they'll never get it with this, with, with four, never. Right. Uh, so. so at least we're both in agreement four is yeah. way too little. it got to expand it. When but in terms they, of, in terms of tonight, again? what? When do they do that? When do they re, um, renegotiate that? It's like another six years. Really? Like 2026 or something like that, I believe, is when the ESPN and cultural playoff package ends i believe in terms of uh how that format is uh, at least right now again no playoff change this year lsu and clemson number one and number three both 14-0 playing tonight to hoist the national title so I'll, I'll give you who i have two keys why i think lsu will win tonight you hit on one of them mark early on we we're talking about the clemson ohio state game right so clemson being able to shut down ohio state in the red zone limit them to field goals instead of touchdowns this is why i think lsu is a key advantage here and why this is a big reason why they'll win tonight Red zone efficiency. Guess who is the number one most efficient red zone offense in the country? LSU. You guessed it. Exactly. Great hey, job, Mark. Yeah, 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 They've been in the red zone 70 times this year. They have 55 touchdowns. 55 oh, touchdowns really? out of really? 70 trips. Think wow. about it. Yeah. Holy so God. not only are they getting in there at a high amount or wow. getting the red zone in that's a high volume, they are scoring more times than what not. What is that, like 80, 83, 84%? I mean, that, that's ridiculous. I probably should have done the math. They have scored 97% of the time they went to the red zone. So either touchdown or field goal. 97% of the time of the 70 times. Let me see. 55 divided by 70 here. 70, 79% of wow. the times they've gotten the red zone, wow. they've scored a touchdown. That's impressive. And, again, just that Fiesta Bowl game alone makes my point. Ohio State had a chance to put the game away in the first half, and they kept selling three times they got in the red zone, kicked field goals every time. It's 16 nothing. It could have been 28 nothing, 24 nothing. They kept kicking field goals, and what do we see? That kept Clemson around. They get those two scores before half, and all of a sudden, next you know, Ohio State – we're from dominating the first 25 minutes of the game to now they're only up by two at halftime with LSU having all the momentum going out of the second half. So it's key and huge for LSU to when they get in the red zone to score touchdowns. 
Another reason why I think that they already have a better and a bigger advantage over Clemson is that they've already faced three different teams this year that are, have a better red zone defense than Clemson, LSU has. In Florida, Auburn, and Georgia, all have better red zone defenses than Clemson. Clemson's 16th, or tied for 16th, in terms of having the best red zone defense. So LSU has done it against some of the best teams already, and they've scored touchdowns more than field goals. That is huge. You have to convert your opportunities because, again, Ohio State right. is the perfect blueprint of what happens when you let a really good team. And how many teams in any sport, they don't convert, they have opportunities, they don't fully – the Texans last yesterday, kick a field goal, maybe score it, and go for a fourth down, could have scored a touchdown, which again, that. Put a team away right there. 20 nothing. the game's over. Leave the door open. Great teams come back and capitalize. That's what Clemson did against, L, uh, against Ohio State. And that's our red zone efficiency. LSU is so good at it. That's why I think that'll be one key. And two, my other key, improved health. Right? LSU defense, I think we've all questioned the entire year. Fairly and unfairly. I think fairly because they just didn't really give you many times for the first three quarters of the year a reason to believe. They're getting gashed by Alabama. They got especially gashed by Ole Miss. But you look at it. For the most part, a lot of their key defensive players were pretty banged up. Grant Delpit had a, had a high ankle sprain in the Alabama game, especially in that, in that Ole Miss game. Caleb on Chason was banged up with different injuries throughout the year that he's gotten healthy. Even Michael Divinity Jr. missed. I mean, he was basically suspended half the year. Right, right. And he will be eligible to play tonight. So you have all three of those guys now fully either healthy or obviously off suspension and back. So now that defense that was such a sieve, such, you know, basically I the biggest it. reason holding them back. My father used to say that all the time. Sieve? Yeah. They were a sieve, absolutely. The last four games, which is really kind of an at least Delpit, Chason, and a lot of the other – guys with nicks and bruises kind of really got to their full health. So the last three games, that's that Ole Miss game. The last two games of the regular season, Georgia, Oklahoma. The last four games, 14.2 points per game allowed, 270 total yards allowed per game. So defense is really clamping down. And, again, Georgia's offense is not great. Texas A&M has some potential there. Oklahoma, we, we know how, how good their offense is, really the only thing that was driving them to the playoff. So they have really improved on the defensive end, and it, it has come with health. And on the offensive side, Clyde Edwards-Alaire obviously hurts his hamstring in practice leading up to the Peach Bowl against Oklahoma. Best-case scenario for LSU in terms of they didn't need him at all. The game was over. I mean, forget halftime. The game was over in the first quarter. As Joe Burrow just dropping dimes all over the place. They barely used Clyde Edwards-Alaire and let him get the hamstring. He says the hamstring is 100% going to tonight. Obviously, we know how big of a key he is, both in the running game and the passing game for LSU. So when you have big key pieces of both offense and defense now fully healthy, and really get into the groove, and you see now when they're healthy, when they're 100%, how talented and how game-changing they are. To me, at least, that is a huge key, and it's something that will help LSU tonight beat uh, Clemson. So improved health, red zone efficiency, those are my two keys, at least why I'm picking LSU to beat Clemson tonight. Which way are you leaning, Mark? I think LSU has proven that they can score, okay? And this will be a real test for them because Clemson showed that they are capable of shutting down a big-time offense they, you know what? They showed they could be shut down a big time offense when they beat Alabama. So anytime they've had the opportunity to show they can go nose to nose with a big boy, they are able to, and they're able to get them to do something other than what they've done well all year. They right. really prepare well for that. So can LSU adjust and go to whatever their secondary plan is? Because you see even in these NFL playoff games, what you did all year, you, you are not going to be allowed to do. They're going to take that away from you. If, you know, Baltimore, Baltimore Ravens, exhibit yep, A. You can run the ball, and even if you can play action pass, oh, sorry, we're going to take that away. Uh, Marge actually running away for 150 yards. You're not going to be able to do that. 
you know, uh, we're going to force you to throw the ball 59 times. You know, or if you're, you know, even early on you saw, uh, it wasn't as good an example, but Houston was able to uh, force Kansas City into a couple of third downs they were unable to convert. So then, you know, Houston, I don't know, it just evaporated. Floodgates just Absolutely evaporated. Um, and you saw Kansas City, too, take away what Houston did really well. And in the second, second half and on, Houston's offense did nothing. They really did. Scored one touchdown. And you At saw it was, absolute was ca- it was absolute chaos. Yeah. All you saw was uh, Sean Watson running for his life. Okay, and you know, with, with the Vikings, they, they Vikings couldn't run the ball at all. And 49ers said, "Look, Kirk Cousins, we, it's a nice beat story. N- nice story you beat the Saints, but let's see you beat us." And they were able to kind of pinch back. Then their uh, a defensive line was able to really apply pressure, and you saw second half mistakes cost them. You know, same thing with the Seahawks. You know, the Seahawks for most of the game, Russell Wilson was. A little confused by the Packers' defense. And then, he fi- like he usually does, he figured it out uh, by the fourth quarter, but the defense was unable to make a stop, you know, in the last couple, couple, couple minutes. Yep. And when it came time to, for the Packers to make that stop and to get Seattle to punt the ball back, they were able to with about three minutes left. Yep. You know, I know there was a big drop pass there that kind of helped. But still... You know, that's what games come down to most of the time. I think tonight it's going to come down to something like we saw in the, in the Clemson-Ohio State game, where one team's going to have the ball with a chance to win it, and who's going to make the play? And I don't know who's going to be an offense or defense, but I, I really think this is going to be a close game between the two best teams in college football. You know, whether you're, you're, if you're Alabama or if you're Ohio State or if you're Oklahoma, you just got to have to suck it up and understand that, these are the best two teams playing tonight, and they deserve to be there. And we'll see what happens. I, I, I can't wait. I think it's going to be a great game. I, I, I just want to see an exciting, close game that you know, keeps you kind of on the edge of your seat, kind of like almost like the first 18 minutes of that Chiefs-Texans game where it was like 24-21, and you're like, wow, this is going to be a great game. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's right. 47-7. to seven, So, um but that, that's what I expect. And uh, just to see all the guys who are going to be in the pros playing tonight at, you know, and two elite programs. You have the SEC and then you have the ACC. But you have Clemson. So I think it's going to be something that's really exciting to watch I, and it will represent college sports really well. I'm so excited. Like I said, LSU, I mean, obviously Clemson, we, we know how historically how great they are. Again, 30-game winning streak on the line. But I, I really do think, I mean, Joe Burrow, when they win tonight, be the Greatest single season we've ever seen from a college football player. And LSU has a, absolutely a great chance with their resume, um, who they've beaten, and kind of how just they blew by everybody to have one of the best college football seasons we've mm-hmm. ever seen from a team. So the last team to beat Clemson was Alabama in 2017. Yeah. Well, the 2018 2017 yeah. season. With yeah. Kelly Bryant as quarterback. Yep. Well. Crazy, right? It's been, it feels like I remember where it was for that game, and it was just like it feels like forever ago. And now I know. Clemson, you know, again, right and back they, on the national stage, yeah. and they've been rolling – Ever since. So very excited for time. If you have a pick on who will win tonight between LSU and Clemson, you want to give us a call. 631-300-4477. That's 631-300-4477. So we'll take your calls tonight. When we come back, we march just head on with the Chiefs and the Texans. Just a hell of a comeback by the Chiefs. Just a really tale of 
one quarter for the Texans and three quarters for the Chiefs. One of the biggest comebacks, uh, the most consecutive points for the deficit in terms of you know being down 24 nothing, scoring 41 straight points. Just absolutely crazy by Kansas City. So we'll react to that. Uh, we'll talk about if the Texans window maybe is possibly closing. And two, a fan went viral for what he did in terms of helping out the Chiefs in their comeback yesterday. Let's talk about that and what you know. How far would you go in your fandom to try to help your team win? So all of that coming up as the morning boys, Ryan Hickey and Mark Ever Kelly, rolling along with you on a Monday morning right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, you're listening to the Morning Boys on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Morning, boys. Ryan Hickey, Mark Everett, Kelly with you here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network every Monday and Thursday, 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. Just did a great ton of preview for LSU Clemson for tonight's LS, uh, national championship game. Very excited in New Orleans. Um, just talking about just me, me and Mark just went through it. Just, I mean, talent everywhere. It's tough to really even give one team an edge just because you look at what LSU does great, while well, Clemson does great on the other side. It, it's just should be a super, super fun game between two of the best teams we've seen in college football, and hopefully college football for the 2019 season will end on a high note. Mark, so obviously to get back to a little NFL divisional round, the Chiefs and the Texans had a just an insane game. 24 nothing for the Texans, and the Chiefs answer 41 straight points as they win and move on to go to the AFC title game. But – I, w- I do want to talk about that game, but quickly I want to I want to get kind of this and kind of ask and even ask the public if you want to give us a call six three one three zero zero four four seven seven. Being a fan is not rational, right? It's if you really just break it down for for what it is, the philosophy. Us as people, as fans, have a rooting interest, a vested interest, a personal emotional connection to an organization that really doesn't is more of a business than anything else, right? They they, they say they care about the fans, but they're there to make money. We root for players and get attached to players that, for the most part, have no idea we exist, are, are grateful that, you know, they're there and show up every week. But for the, like, we have no personal connection. I don't know Peyton Manning. He's my favorite player of all time. He has no clue I even exist. But it's just like you, you just get so focused and wrapped up in these guys that just being a fan, having your mood, your schedule dictated by watching players play a children's game that have no clue you exist or really no per- emotional or personal connection to you is just – it's not logical, right? Like you, you say to someone – all right, Mark, you and your mood, your schedule for your life will be dictated around this construction site, how they build this building. It, it doesn't make a sense. But we as fans are invested and dedicated. So I want to bring this up because how superstition, how and how far would you go to help your team succeed? And the reason why I say this is because yesterday during that Chiefs game, obviously they're down, they were down 24 nothing to start. So a Chiefs fan, his name is Charles Penn. He was at the game. He was in Arrowhead. He's tweeting pictures before the game. He's pretty. It seems like he has pretty good seats, actually. Maybe like 20 or 25 rows from the from the field. He's done a pretty good Chiefs playoff game. Obviously, a lot of hype, a lot of hope. Um, and especially with the Ravens losing the night before, Chiefs fans, I'm sure, are looking ahead like, listen, you know, this this could be our time to go to the Super Bowl, get Andy Reid one, get Patrick Holmes one, and get over the hump, right? Because we've seen the Chiefs so many times have played disappointment. Bad, especially at home, right? And before last year, their first, the last playoff win was with Joe Montana, quarterback. So you had so much heartbreak, especially bad playoff losses at home, that the Chiefs just give you no reason to believe, but fans still come back, and this is the year that we're going to do it. So Charles Penn's at the game. He tweets down 4 to nothing after 
Tyreek Hill muffs that punt that gave the Texans the ball at the Chiefs' five-yard line. Texans score a touchdown here. I think I'm going to leave the game. What happens? Texans score a touchdown. All of a sudden, it's 21 nothing in the first quarter and ends up going up to 24 nothing again before the Chiefs start their comeback. So Charles tweets, I have to leave. He puts himself and blames himself as the, being the jinx and the reason why the Chiefs are down. And for the good of the fans around him, for the good of the team and his fandom, he says, you know what, I'm going to leave this game because that's the only way I think the Chiefs are going to come back. I'm putting this bad start on myself. I think I'm the jinx, and I'm going to do the, my best, put my you know, self, or put the team, I should say, before myself. Now, he came out later. He paid over $200 for his ticket. Leaves it, takes a video of him. This is what exploded. Takes video of him leaving the stadium, basically saying, so, you know, Chiefs fans, I'm sorry. This is a tough start. I'm leaving the game because this is the only way I think the Chiefs will be able to come back. This is down 21 nothing. All of a sudden, he gets in his car. He's watching it, gets home, watching the game. As soon as he gets home, the Chiefs score their first touchdown. And obviously, you know, we, get, we know from there, the floodgates open, 41 straight points, and they blow out the Texans, 51-31. So what would you do, Mark? How far would you go for, you know, for, to want one of your teams to win? Would you ever pay for a playoff? You know, we know the playoff tickets, especially here in New York, right? So if the Jets or the Mets or the Islanders in the playoffs, would you ever pay over $200 for a ticket See what's going on and be like, you know what? Maybe I'm the reason why they're losing. I'm going to take them for the team here because there's no science behind it. It's superstitious. How superstitious are you? Literally, there's no correlation between him leaving the game and the Chiefs coming back. But in, in Charles' mind, there was. And now, again, coincidence or not, the Chiefs come back as soon as he leaves the building. How far would you go in your fandom? What, what would you do to help ensure that whatever one of your teams in the playoffs, that they would win? I don't have much experience with that, but I would have to, look, I, I think whenever I was a kid or even in my early adult years, you have that superstition. I remember one time I was watching uh, I met the Mets in the playoffs, and every time I would shut off the game, I would turn it back on and there would be something good happen. So, you know, and my, my brother would talk about how he would, like, uh, have like turn the radio, click this thing, one that, like crap his hand three times, and okay, turn around and you know do the hokey pokey, and you turn yourself around. Every, like everything you could think of that it's the reason why your team, because I think that's how we all think is, it's my fault or it's uh, you know if I don't do this, you know players have superstitions, fans have superstitions. If I don't eat this before the game, weight box with chicken, you know, um, then it's my fault the team doesn't win, and. It, it can be taken, obviously, to a ridiculous length. I, I think that this guy really felt like what what he was doing was going to help the team, and that's kind of – I mean, he's the one that spent his money. I mean, right. I'd, I'd, I'd be kind of – So would you be willing to do that? Would you spend playoff money, playoff ticket kind of money, get some good seats, go to the game, leave in the first quarter because your team is losing, and you think you're the jinx? Would you ever – if you think you're the jinx, right? Let's say you've gone to – let's just use the Jets, for example, right? They had a lot of misery there. You've gone to three Jets games that season. They're 0-3, let's just say. But you still, oh, you got playoff tickets. I'm going to go. Stole out the money. Jets are down 4 to nothing in the first quarter. Do you even consider leaving? Uh, consider? <laughs> do you do it? Do you leave? I, 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 what, does, a, does a thought cross my mind? Maybe, but I am not, I'm not going to go anywhere. Um, not, not at 14 nothing. 28 nothing. Are you maybe, leaving for a different maybe. reason now? 
Uh, I, I I believe him because I think I, a lot of fans I, I, I just don't want to do that to myself. I don't think a lot of them would blame themselves with the jinx. And, oh, we're going to come back if I leave. Yeah, I no. I, like, I mean, if if, if, if you're that nar- if you're that narcissistic, maybe you would. <laughs> you know, hey, you know what? This all depends on me, and let me walk out, and I'll take my stuff with me, and you know, then we'll see a change. Uh, I mean, I think that's kind of ridiculous, but. I mean, you, you know, I told you the story of when uh, me and uh, my friend Sanford and, my, and you know, the, the Bear, Chris Felica, the guy who does uh, college football game day, okay? We were at the Jets, Miami, and uh, this is 2000, okay? This is October 2000, and it was the week the Mets and the Yankees were playing in the World Series, and it was the Monday off day. So you had the, uh, the Saturday, Sunday. You know, the Yankees won the Sunday game was the Roger Clements, Mike Piazza incident. So you had the one day off in between. And Sanford and I went, went to the, you know, and Felica, we all went to the game. Chris drove. And um, we get there, and we're, we're all excited, you know, through the whole, you know, as they're introducing the players, you know, all this kind of. So Sanford and I are sitting in one section, uh, and Chris and his dad are sitting in another section. So. As the game's going on, the Jets are getting killed. And it's the, Chief, the Dolphins then score at the very beginning of the fourth quarter to make it 30 to 7. And I'm ready to leave. I was ready to leave in the third quarter, you know, when it just, the Jets couldn't do anything right. They had like seven total yards. And it just looked like, uh, you know, like so many times. It, again, remember, I went to the spike game. Like I, I went to a couple games where I went to the game where they lost to the Sanford and I went to the game where they lost to the Bills. Actually, that would happen the next year. So that didn't happen yet. But they lost to the 2-12 and 12 Bills in a game. Right? If they won, they would have won the AFC East. And that first Brady team wouldn't have won the division. So they would have to go through the wild card. But anyway, um, those types of things have happened. So essentially, you want to get out as fast as you can. And that was a Monday night, too. And it was like, okay, we got to get up the next day for work. It's a three-hour, you know, two-and-a-half-hour drive from the Meadowlands back up to Connecticut where we lived. So those things were kind of in our mind, too. And then, of course, you know, we don't want to just sit through this crap, essentially. So beginning of fourth quarter, after that happens, we, we look down. We're starting to look for him now. And then we see Chris, like, waving to us with this really pissed-off look on his face. Like, we're getting out of here. Yeah. Get out of here. Get up. So get get to, your jack. Yeah, so we get down there. And, 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 and Chris says to us, I was at 20 nothing Saints in 1995. I was at, you know, blah, blah, blah. This was the worst I've ever seen a team play. So we're, we're all of us are bitching all the way to the car. You know, as we're walking to the car, we hear, like, screams of excitement. Like, oh, I wonder what's going on. We, we get into the car, and it's 30 to 13. Okay, because the Jets tried for a two-point conversion again. So it's 30 to 13. So we're all kind of like... Yeah, but it's nice that they do that when we leave, but you know what? Like, right. uh, it, too late, too, too little, too late. So by the time we get out of the parking lot, now it's 30 to 20. And, you know, then we're, as we're going home, we, we're on, you know, uh, whatever, was it Route 80? And then you, we get onto Route 95, you know, kind of going up all the way to, uh, to Connecticut. And then it's 30 23. And then by the time we get almost like around George Washington Bridge, it's now tied. Like, and we're like, oh my God. And then, Miami went ahead real quick, so they went ahead 37-30, and then the Jets tie it. You know, now we're uh, kind of on a Hutchinson River Parkway, you know, and then, um, but, you know, I think by the time that John Hall kicked the game-winning field goal, uh, it was, you know, we were ba- maybe at half an hour from home. So that was one instance where, I mean, the Monday night miracle, okay, 
like if you were going to stay at like the fans talk about staying at those types of games and like and you hear fans saying, hey, I was responsible for them winning because I stayed and I, I got everyone you know, together. I know a friend of mine went to the Yankees Red Sox where, where Aaron Boone hit that home run and the Yankees were trailing by three runs in the eighth inning. And he was like, yeah, and I, and I kind of uh, positioned myself on a left field foul pole and I had my hand there and I was like hanging off the foul pole and I was able to like whip all these friends into, uh, fans into a frenzy. Like I, I had a friend told me that at that game. I'm like, yeah, okay. It's, you might have killed yourself falling right. off, but hey, it works for you. And so the next day, Russell Baxter, we used to do a segment on ESPN Radio every, after every Monday night game the next day, you know, talked about that. And he said, you know, I don't care how bad it is, you never leave a game. You, you know, that, that is one reason why you never leave a game, because of things that just happened. So he told of, you know, me, Sanford, and Chris going to the game and then leaving early. You know, at that time, you know, I mean, Sanford and I had only been there, you know, two years. And Felica was, was a guy who was, you know, pretty well known. And obviously now everybody knows who right. he is. Uh, but uh, we, we got, we got you know, everybody was teasing us, all the producers, all the, you know, anchors, everybody. You know, you have like, you know, Reese Davis and those guys coming up to you. So I heard you went, you know, so, you know, <laughs> it, it was kind of embarrassing. You know, at the same time, you know, you have people just absolutely ragging on us for like, yeah, you know. And then some people actually thanked us. You know, you had, you know, the, the psychotic Jet fan. I know one of the producers was like, you know, I feel like I feel so inspired by the Jets win. This is going to help the Mets now in, in coming back in against the Yankees, you know. Uh, and, um, you know, thanks, guys, because I know it was all you guys, the reason why you left. That's why they came back, you know. And still, I'm, part of me is convinced that if we didn't leave, that would have never happened, you know. But it's almost like one of those accidental, like, coincidences. But, like, you, of course like, it is. You, <laughs> But I guess, like, it's just funny because, like, right, like, who, maybe you guys just didn't know, right? Absolutely. The jinx, Mark Kelly, Mark Ever Kelly's out of the building. Boom. All right. Let's, let's go on offense, guys. Let's, let's score some touchdowns. Would you – but to be fair, like, no, no one's blaming you for leaving in the – like, 30 to 7 in the fourth quarter. Who the hell is staying? You know, right. It's more like those psychotic Jets fans that stayed and witnessed it more than anything else where it's just, like, 30 to 7, seen this a million times, I'm out of here. It's just funny, like, would you ever leave in the fir- – I don't think I would ever leave in the first quarter, let alone maybe in the fourth quarter. Like, it's, it's just absolutely incredible that I, I give Charles a lot of credit. He did something I would never be able to do. And I think I'm with you. I'm very superstitious in-game. Like, if I sit one way and all of a sudden my team scores, like, I'm not moving. I'm not getting up. I'm not doing anything, right? Like, we're all like that in some sort of small ways. I don't know if I'd ever go to the length of paying big money for a playoff game and leaving in the first quarter. You know, 24 nothing in the fourth quarter, all right, fine. Beat the traffic, get out of there. Like, you've seen enough. But there's still, as, as we saw, there's so much time left. And with the offense of Patrick Mahomes, and we know how explosive they are, like, I don't think really anyone thought the game was truly over. Like, the comeback was always in the back of your mind. Um, so I, I give Charles a lot of credit. He, he did something I never would have done. I never would have left early if I was a fan buying a ticket, going to the actual game. Um, and he, he, whether the jinx or not, he absolutely did the right thing. Now, there's no way he can go to another game, right? Patrick Holmes even said, watch the, watch the game when he was told that I watched the next game from home. There's no way. Excuse me. Oh, my goodness. There's right no there way guy. Can, can what, even what, go. What a little, uh, the water, I little pepper steak on the way to Holy work. Holy cow. That water may put, put some hair on your chest, I guess. Uh, I guess strong so. stuff it's there. Wink, wink. <laughs> uh, it's definitely wa- uh, water, bosses. One of those mornings. If they're, leaving, if they're listening. Um, 
So there's no way to go to the AFC title game or the Super Bowl, right, if the Chiefs get there. He has to watch every game from home from now on until maybe even the Chiefs get a Super Bowl. Is that fair to say? Like, when you put yourself in this situation where you leave and all of a sudden now a comeback of this magnitude happens, until the Chiefs win a Super Bowl, he can never go to a playoff game again. Is that fair to say? Well, if people recognize him, maybe he's got to wear a disguise. But I'm saying, but like, I mean, I, I'm saying for him, like, I mean, I mean he, he, he could, you never know. I don't he, think he, he can. He, he get a deal from it. You know, maybe somebody, uh, some Domino's or somebody said, we'll set you up with wings and everything. You can watch the game from home. That way we never have to worry about you right. ruining our playoff chances again. I mean, for all we know, he was the reason why they didn't win those years. You know, why they lost to the Ravens in 2010, why they lost to the Colts in 19, uh, in 2003. Uh, why they lost, maybe even in 97, why they lost to the Broncos. He 95, why they lost to the Colts. Not sure how old. He looks decently young. So I'm not well, sure still, they, but you never know. Maybe his parent was there and he was in the womb. Catching, catching the, you know, his own pass for a touchdown in that game where the, the Titans beat the Chiefs Yes, exactly, ago. right. Yeah, you right, know, there, but 21-6, to six, right? plenty of examples of the Chiefs losing at home recently under Andy exactly. or anyone else where it's just, yeah, okay, maybe, you know. Maybe there's enough there that he was the reason. Maybe he was yeah. not the Colts game. It was at the Patriots game last year. You know, but the but interesting thing is, though, is you have the fact that, you, you know, a couple of years ago, maybe about five, six years ago, when they were at Indianapolis and Andrew Luck led them back from 38 to 14. So that was the 24-point blown lead that they had, okay? Then you had a couple of years ago, 21 to 3. They're up against uh, Mariota and the, tech, uh, and the Titans, and they lose that game, okay? So you have, like... In, the, in NFL playoff history, that's like top six as far as blown leads. Obviously, you have the Bills and, 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 and Oilers. Uh, then you have a couple of 24-point leads, and which was them against the Colts was one of them. Yep. Um, and then you obviously have the Patriots winning against the uh, down 25 in the Super Bowl as I think the second one. But then you have, like I remember in 1981, there was a game between the Dolphins and the Chargers where, you know, the Dolphins were down 24 nothing in the first quarter, and they came back, and they pushed the game into overtime, and Chargers were able to win. That was the game Kellen Winslow was, like, carried off the field. Yep. Okay? Um, I remember watching that game. Also, in that same 1981 playoff, you had the Jets against the Bills. It was the Jets' first playoff game since 69, and the Jets fell down 24 nothing, and they got it to 31-27, and they were driving at the end of the game, and Richard Todd gets intercepted at the, in, at the two-yard line by Bill Simpson. Uh, with about 10 seconds left. Um, and the Jets had cut a 31-13 lead in the fourth quarter down to 31-27. So that, that was the week before. Uh, they, so there were a lot of really exciting games that won playoff year. The 81 yeah. playoff year was an awesome year. Um, plus, you also had Montana uh, you know, driving to beat the Cowboys in the championship game that year. Uh, that was 1981 as well. So there were, there were a lot of games that came down to, like, the, the, the last minute, the last second kind of in that, in that playoff year. So this year, when the Chiefs get down 24 nothing, you think, you know, uh, you know, I've seen some teams do this. Yesterday as I'm watching the game, I, you know, I, I know they can do it, but all going into this game, people said was if the Chiefs lose, they have no excuse now because now the Patriots are gone, the Ravens are gone now, like, the door is clearly open now for them to go in and to get down 24 nothing. And you heard the, the commentators, too. You know, oh, Bill O'Brien said all week, we can't win. We, you know, and people are actually, like, mad at the Texans because they think that they're going, they're kicking a field goal down 21 or up 21 nothing was maybe ruined the momentum and that they should have gone for it on fourth down. And 
Really? Like, you don't uh, think so? Well, I mean, but uh, like, is, is that really? Did that really hurt the momentum? I mean, I think them not being able to stop the other team. Well, yeah. You know, and having absolutely no no answer for the Chiefs, and on top of that, not being able to continue what they were doing offensively or adjusting to the Chiefs, adjusting to them. Because by by the time Kansas City got back into the game, and it was 24-21. The, the uh, Texans just couldn't move the ball anymore. And then all of a sudden, you know, Deshaun Watson had nowhere to go, and he was constantly under pressure. So whatever adjustments Kansas City made, this is why I love Andy Reid, because Andy Reid doesn't get enough credit for his ability to do that. And he's, he's a great head coach. And, and I know he gets a lot of flack for losing those championship games uh, with the Eagles and then, you know, having that reputation early on with the Chiefs of not being able to win. But... Clearly, he is a coach that is one of the best as far as in-game managing, as far as understanding, like, so many different little intricacies that go into changing uh, what, what, what's going on, not working, yep. and adjusting. And oh, yeah. I, I think he showed it clearly in that game. Yep. Uh, Patrick Mahomes, if there was any question about who was the best quarterback right now between Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes, I think Mahomes showed it. Like, yeah, Lamar Jackson had a great year, but I'm still the real up-and-coming quarterback in this league, um, and this is why. Because he was absolutely unstoppable, and everything he did, I mean, what, they showed a graphic like the Chiefs after – not converting like two of those first couple third downs. They only had got to third down like three more times the rest of the game. I mean, they're what? Their time to possession was only like 20 minutes. You know, these drives were very yeah. quick. Oh, yeah. You know, like boom, boom, boom. You know, before you know it, it's. Floodgates just, yeah. like we said, absolutely just opened right up. Right. So, I mean, it's not like they just scored. They scored quick and, and they scored, you know, to where if you're the, the Texans, you're like, what the heck? We were up 24 nothing. I mean, to be up by 24 and then to lose by 24 is absolutely amazing. Just so that was dominance like we've never seen before. And uh, I doubt it had anything to do with that fan getting back to him. But I think that's definitely a funny story. It's something yes. that I think everyone can relate to. I think it's something that all of us have thought at one point or another watching the game and the little things that we do to trick ourselves into thinking we have something to do with it. Right. If you do have any sort of, you know, experiences like Charles, like I said, leaving the first quarter, blaming himself as a jinx as a reason why the Titan, uh, the, the Chiefs, excuse me, are down 24 nothing. 631-300-4477. That's 631-300-4477. If you have any crazy superstitions or anything you've done to try to help your team come back and it actually worked and they won the game, um, in part because of your courageous superstitious act. We'll love to hear those. Again, 631-300-4477. You mentioned your point there, Mark. Like you said, right. 24, you're up 24 nothing. The reason why I, I think the field goal was as damaging as it was, and to your point, they didn't lose because they kicked the field goal on fourth and inches from the Chiefs' 24-yard line, and that didn't, or the 20-yard line, and that didn't give them the Chiefs' momentum at all. But the reason why I thought it really changed the tide a little bit is because we just said it, right? The, it's 21 nothing, and the Texans are driving. While you don't think that the game is over because Patrick Mahomes and this offense, they showed just how explosive they were, but through the two years that Mahomes has been the quarterback, 
it's, you know, this offense is like anything we've ever seen before in terms of just how efficient and well they can move the ball up and down the field. And to also your point, the first few third downs, like the Chiefs dropped, I think it was four passes on those first two drives they had. Like, everything was out of whack and out of sync. So all of a sudden now, you know, a team coming off the bye that seems either rusty or totally not focused, whatever it is, the first quarter they just were atrocious. And now you have 20 nothing with a chance, fourth and inches at the Chiefs' 20-yard line. The reason why I wish Bill Byron went for it is because you have a chance right there. If you score a touchdown, if you get it, score a touchdown, you could really put your foot on the throw. 28 nothing is tough, man. I mean, I know 24 nothing. it's still technically three scores if you, if you go for two every time, but it's really still four scores that you need if you want to try to come back in that game. 28 nothing. I just feel like for to score four touchdowns, give yourself really no room for margin if you're the Chiefs, and give them no momentum either. Like, don't give the defense any sort of break that they can try to stop you or hang on. I mean, again, to your point, it didn't help. Like, nothing the offense did prevented the Chiefs from scoring on seven, seven straight drives. Think about that. Seven straight touchdown drives the Chiefs had after the Titans kicked that field goal. It, it was a team thing for sure. But I just think you couple that on top of the fake punt on your own 30 – and that to me, like, yeah, that, it was like coaching that's, backwards. That's a little different. Like, yeah. you don't go for it at the Chiefs 20, but you decide to go for it on a fake punt on your own 30, where the consequences of either one were if you go for it, the matchup is way on your side. Um, on the fourth down, he said kick a field goal and vice versa. If you don't get it, obviously the Chiefs have all the momentum. They did, they scored a touchdown. So it was just that's where I thought the, the real coaching question came into, uh, into factor for Bill Bryan. I want to ask you this go about the Texans, right? Because we could say all the praise of the Chiefs. I think, you know, the Chiefs really showed both sides of the ball. For the second half, for the second quarter, on I should say, just how how good they are and why they are one of the top teams in the NFL. The Texans obviously have a young quarterback, Sean Watson, drafted just two spots behind Patrick Mahomes. Is it possible that the Texans' championship window is not as wide open as we thought, right? Because I think in the NFL now, the, the thinking and what's in vogue is having a young, dynamic quarterback, whether it's Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, or even. In another version, but still dynamic, in Lamar Jackson, right? They all do it all different ways, but all three of them are dynamic and very effective in getting the job done, scoring points on offense, and leading to wins. And we always talk about how young quarterbacks, especially while they're on that first year or that first rookie contract, that's the best time to win with them. Deshaun Watson, there's no doubt he's a championship-level quarterback, right? He's shown it at Clemson alone, and let alone this year when he's been healthy. He has elevated that Texas team to way higher heights than maybe they should have as just an average or even above-average quarterback. But so you, you think everything is there with Sean Watson and his skill set that the Texans should be looking at, you know, a 10, 15-year championship window where it's always – like with the Packers Aaron Rodgers. You have Aaron Rodgers, despite what's around him, you know that the Packers will always, for the most part, be in contention one year or another. They may go through a full few lulls, but here they are again, Aaron Rodgers back in, in the NFC title game. So you should have that with Sean Watson. The reason why I'm weary and leery, I should say, of yeah, that – I'm weary. Uh, I, I'm weary, weary too. Weary and leery, yeah. Is because you look at this team construction, right? Obviously, they made that big Lambert Tunsil, Kenny Stills trade to try to short the offensive line. They give up two first-round picks. So now you don't have a first-round pick this year or next year. Those are two guys you could have on the cheap that you could plug in and play legitimate, you know, ha- have a legitimate impact and really become a starter from day one. So you, you miss those two guys. In that Tunsil trade, right, the biggest thing with Sean Watson the first two years we saw was their offensive line just being atrocious. It was, a, it was the Andrew Luck treatment. Sean Watson was getting killed back there. He's having no time. And it really hamstrung the offense because they really couldn't call anything deep because Deshaun Watson would just get the ball and run for his life. So tried to shore it up a little bit with the tough trade. Well, they allowed the eighth most sacks this year. Despite the trade, despite adding a few other pieces, they, t- they drafted Titus Howard in the first round and offered to tackle. They still allowed 49 sacks, which is eighth most. And in the two playoff games they played, 
They allowed 12 sacks, which is the most of any team in the playoffs so far. So they, they go all in, right? It, it didn't seem like that trade for Stills and Tunsil was an all-in push, like this year and maybe next year. We're going to go try to win a Super Bowl. Well, it didn't really get you so far, at least to an AC title game. Not to mention, the offensive line was probably a bigger disappointment than we thought coming in with just how they go all in and really did not pay any dividends for the most part. Now, they have $60 million, $61 million cap space, so that kind of offsets a little bit of the lack of the first-round draft pick. But at the same time, Deshaun Watson eligible for an extension this year, and you got to think that they're going to extend him before Patrick Mahomes because the price of quarterbacks is only going to go up. Patrick Mahomes is going to reset the market. The Chiefs are talking about making him the first $200 million quarterback. Well, guess what? The Texans don't want to follow that up with Deshaun Watson. They have to do something first and quicker for the Chiefs to lock down Patrick Mahomes. So Watson will get paid and absolutely deserves it. But as we just outlined, the offensive line needs help. The defense especially, like, the defense, especially that back seven with the second and the linebackers, is not good. When you talk about it, the Chiefs scored seven straight touchdowns. They were getting torched all over the field. And now it's, I mean, Travis Kelsey, they, they couldn't cover. Sammy Watkins, they couldn't cover. McCall Harmon, they couldn't Like, Mahomes was thrown to everyone. So that back seven especially, if you, if you want to be a Super Bowl contender and get on that elite level where you are a legitimate contender and have all the pieces set, well, you need a lot of help with that defense, more than more money than cap space will have. And so that's why, at least to me, and even some of your key defensive stud guys, J.J. White, Whitney Merciless, while will be 31 next year, he could barely stay on the field. And Whitney Merciless will be 30, and he's been very consistent. But we saw, too, his production dip once J.J. White left the field. So it's like, so now you have a lot of your key core guys of defense either unable to stay on the field and not making as impact as you thought, the offensive line needing help. The defense and the back end needing help. Deshaun Watson is going to get absolutely paid. To me, at least, there's, this has the makings of squandering an opportunity for a young dynamic quarterback to really capitalize and get to the ceiling that the Texans should be at. And for no fault of his own in Deshaun Watson. It's just that help is not there. And so that's why, like, watching this game, seeing them go 24 nothing and blowing the lead that they did, see, it makes it more painful because let's say the Chiefs didn't come back, right? The Texans won the game. The Chiefs lost. Well, guess what? The Chiefs still know next year, all right, we'll still be right back where we were. All right, they lose that devastating game to the Patriots last year. Part of what helped is because, all right, we have a young stud quarterback, Patrick Mahomes, and this team is ready to contend and win next year. Made some pieces of defense, uh, adjusted and played better. But for the most part, they didn't really change too much and have too many drastic changes to overhaul and improve their chances from last year to this year. Well, the Texans, I, can you honestly say, Mark, next year, the Texans, if they just run it back, keep the same roster, that they're a championship Super Bowl contender? I can't. They're a playoff team, sure. But you see that gap between the playoff team and Super Bowl contenders. You can make the playoffs, have a nice you know, winner game or two, but the Texans, I feel like, have, have kind of been in that space for a while now. Bill Bryan has won the division for the last five years, so you're not knocking his coaching ability. But it's like, what can they do to get over that next hump? Right? They've obviously got their, their ceiling now. is at least making the playoffs. How can they burst it to now become not just making the playoffs is is the goal how can they win the Super Bowl and get there I to me at least right now looking unless something drastic happens where they're trading a lot of guys maybe even fire Bill Bryan and bring some new offensive life like there's not many options and moves that the Texans can go from this offseason on to improve their chances to really give themselves a more legitimate chance being Super Bowl and that's why I get nervous that everything you think we know about young quarterbacks being there for a long time should keep a championship window open. I just think it's shorter than we actually think it is going to be in Houston, and that's what gets me worried. That's why, to me at least, that loss yesterday stings more and hurts more because there's not many of these opportunities that aren't going to come around to win and go to the SC title game and get a chance to go to the Super Bowl with Deshaun Watson just because they're so – 
hamstrung, almost like the Rams. The Rams, same thing. They have are in cap hell, and they gave away a ton of draft picks. There's not many moves they can make to elevate their ceiling more than it was this year. I feel like that the Texans are in a little bit better position, but with everything said and done, I don't think there's many things they can do on the same level to elevate their ceiling to get them to the next level. That's why I'm a little concerned that the ceiling for the Texans in their championship window is closing, and it will be closed, I should say, sooner than we actually think. Do you agree with that, disagree? The Texans? Yes. Um, well, I, I still think that Sean Watson's pretty young. Hopkins is pretty young. Uh, you see kind of how teams from year to year, you think that they're going in one direction and they alter things a little bit and they might be able to adjust and, and it alters their entire performance, whether it's offensively, whether it's defensively. Uh, I think J.J. Watt being out all year really kind of hurt them as far as continuity with the rest of the defensive line. You saw him make an impact against Buffalo a little bit. But against Kansas City, maybe he was a little winded. I mean, you could tell these guys were kind of, uh, you know. Uh, undermanned? There's, like, is undermanned? There's another word for being exhausted, I guess, you know. But I, I think that they don't really have the depth that they need to add some of the major positions. There really wasn't anybody else who kind of stepped up. Um, you know, Wh Whitney Mer Merciless is a guy who is an exceptional athlete. Uh, but you still, he's kind of a tweener. You don't know whether he's a pass rusher. You don't know whether he's a guy that can stop. He couldn't do anything yesterday. I mean, nobody on their defense could do anything yesterday. And to get lit up like that you know, from the second quarter on, it's not like they gave 47 points from the start of the game. They did it essentially from the second quarter on. So there's clearly some issues that need to be addressed. And whatever it was that Bill O'Brien uh, was lacking as a head coach or his understanding of defensive philosophy or whatever, that – needs to be considered going into the offseason. Because offensively, I think they have the talent to compete. You saw that. Deshaun Watson is a quarterback that has unique skills. You know, not as unique as they were, I guess, because of the uh, development of guys like, um, you know, Lamar Jackson and, and Mahomes, you know. But he's still a guy, I think, that you can win with. And you saw he was kind of running for his life in the second half. And if you give him... The chance to make plays, he will. So I think they have that going for them. And that's really the most important thing that you need in the NFL to win. So going forward, they have to shore up that defense. I don't, I don't care what they have to do. I don't care who they have to bring in um, to make that happen. You know, getting rid of uh, Clowney certainly didn't help. Um, you saw that they, him and J.J. Watt were a, a very good tandem for a little while. And there was they couldn't stay on the field together because – one of them always had an injury problem, but that would really help them yesterday. You saw how it kind of helped Seattle at some key moments yesterday. So how they go about the draft is they, they have enough offensive players. Maybe they could use a better running game, but they definitely need to shore up their ability to stop the pass because they just had no idea how to yesterday. 100% right, and like, that's, that's my point. It's just like Deshaun Watson is so good. He's that – like he could take you to the Super Bowl. The issue is just the rest of the team around him is just – I just don't see many avenues that they can go for improvement. Shore up, like you said, like, sure, they, they, $61 million, of, again, in, in the cap for this year. Well, someone's going to go to Deshaun Watson's extension. Draft picks, like, you, you know, they do have a second-round pick, which is nice, but it's just like they, they did give away a decent amount of draft picks. I have to look – I think the number is like five or six draft picks. So it's just like there's not that many chances for them to upgrade the talent that they have, and that's what gets you worried that, you know – 
maybe they're starting to squander a little bit, which is why, you know, you got to see how they go about it in Houston because, like I said, it would be an absolute travesty um, and a tragedy if Deshaun Watson doesn't even make a Super Bowl, let alone win one, just because he ha- absolutely has the talent for it. And we just hope he gets to that big stage. But I'm a little concerned right now, looking ahead for the Texans, things don't look as bright as maybe they should be with, again, with a young, top, dynamic quarterback that they have on their team. So we come back, we'll take one more break, come back. The Browns make a head coaching hire. We'll talk about that as well as a little more NFL notes. It is the Morning Boys, Ryan Hickey, Mark Everett Kelly with you on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're listening to the Morning Boys on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You are listening to the Morning Boys. Ryan Hickey, Mark Everett Kelly with you every Monday and Thursday, 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. Right here, only on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Or plenty of ways to listen to us. We are on the TuneIn app. If you just type in the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, you can find us there. Um, WorldwideSportsRadio.com. You can watch or listen to the show if you're so inclined. Mark dresses up in a beautiful suit and tie every single show, so... You see his great face, and you see mine that just looked like I just rolled out of bed. Oh, uh, so if you want to watch, we're on Periscope. Uh, we're also on YouTube. YouTube's been a great live feature. When you just type in the Worldwide Sports Radio Network, you find us pop up every Monday, Thursday. Subscribe. You get alerts every time we're, we are live, not just our show. A ton of great shows. The Haystack Up Next is a great show. Uh, third and Long, there is just, I mean, can go on and on and on. Um, down in the Wires. Again, so many good shows, and the network is constantly expanding as well. Um, so whether it's you can only listen in the morning, afternoon, and nights on the weekends. We are slowly but surely building up some great content to fill all of that time for you. Uh, so if you are a big fan, we're also on Facebook, World of Sports Radio Network on Facebook. Also, we have our own Facebook page, Mark, the Morning Boys page. I still have Mark created, so if you want to take a, uh, take a look and throw us a like, we post all our every show in there, and also our, our articles we write for worldwidesportsradio.com are also posted in that site as well. Mark, just a few more minutes here. Obviously, a lot, a lot of games, both previewing the national title team and reacting to all the divisional round matchups uh, from earlier on this weekend. But some other news that made happen, and now, yeah, right there. I had a cold all week, mm-hmm. and now, like, it's just. I, I guess I still have some sort of effects for it. So please bear with me. Excuse me. I apologize. As we just try to make through the last 15 minutes. Hopefully, <laughs> I can make it through. So if we hear Ryan vomiting on the. No vomiting. Just the, the, basically, I start talking and I just can't talk. <laughs> Raspiness. Or I just lose that, my voice. Mark, it's, it's going to Mark Ever Kelly show. Uh, no, that, that happened the other day while I was talking to somebody and I literally, my something happened in my brain or whatever, but I, I, it ceased to function and I couldn't form the words correctly out of my mouth. A little different scenario, but I think it happens to the best of us, big guy. Myself and Mark, both true professionals. Thank God we don't get paid to talk for a living or else <laughs> we'd, be, uh, we'd be really in trouble there. Mark, so like I was trying to say Wait, yeah. before the illness came, uh, came over me really <laughs> quick, so with all the action, like, the national title game night, all the divisional games we had this weekend, loss of the shuffle kind of happened over the weekend was that the Browns yesterday announced that they hired Kevin Zafanski, which is the Vikings offense coordinator, as their next head coach to succeed Freddie Kitchens. And on Friday, we talked about the Browns because uh, we had a chance to kind of talk about all the head coaching hires. The Browns at that point on, on our show, I should Thursday, so again, the day is confused, on Thursday, so not yet filled their head coaching vacancy. And I said, as long as it's, Josh, it's not Josh McDaniels, I think it'll be a win. Stefanski finished second last year to Freddie Kitchens when he interviewed, and now he gets the job. And 
I think it's good on paper, but there's still some pause for the Browns. It gives me some concern. We'll get your thoughts as well here, Mark. But you look, last year, right, with all the talent, we talked about all offseason and this season, how much talent the Browns had on offense, right? There's just running backs, quarterbacks, skill positions, tight ends, receivers. They had it all. But they were 22nd in offensive efficiency last year. So at least bringing now Kevin Stefanski in, you think it's a little bit better mind. You saw what you can do with Kirk Cousins. Really improved them in two areas which is play action, um, really helped Kirk Cousins on that sense. Excuse me. And well now, see, now I'm blank. Now I, I'm forgetting exactly what I said. Oh, and out of the pocket throws. Excuse me. Baker Mayfield was one of the worst quarterbacks throwing outside the pocket last year. So two areas that Kevin Stefanski really helped Kirk Cousins in is two areas that Baker Mayfield really struggled. That's why I like to hire in that sense. You get a true, true offensive. I know they went this exact same route last year with Freddie Kitchens, a little bit uh, inexperienced. Um, coordinator become a head coach. Obviously, Kevin Stefanski, Kevin Stefanski, never a head coach before, 37 years old, has called basically a season plus three games in the 2018 year as an offense coordinator. So 19 regular season games, he's been an offense coordinator calling plays. So very inexperienced in that sense. But I think in terms of all of the candidates they applied for it and had a real chance, or excuse me, interviewed and had a chance for, Stefanski seemed like the runner-up with him and McDaniels. I'm glad, again, it was – it was Stefanski over Josh McDaniels. But this is what gives me pause, Mark, because there's an article by CantonRep.com that was posted a few hours after the Stefanski announcement. And this kind of changed my tune on the hiring and just the way the Browns overall go about their business, right? I think it's fair to say the Browns have been very dysfunctional for a very long time. Their lack of playoff history shows it. Um, even since Jimmy Haslam took over in 2012, it's been an absolute nightmare, just a rotating door of head coaches, coordinators, GMs. It's just been a mess. And I really did think last year's problems is more about Freddie Kitchens than the culture or the front office upheaval than anything else. Right? They had John Dorsey um, as a general manager. He brought some stability for what he did in Kansas City. And I, I really did think more than anything else, it was due to the fact Freddie Kitchens was not ready to be a head coach were unable to call the right plays to get the offense where they should have been. But now this story by canrep.com basically says how in the interview, Paul, uh, you know, which was run by Paul DePodesta, who is essentially their chief strategy officer now that Jimmy, ha- uh, now that John Dorsey is out. So he is essentially their interim GM until they hire someone. But he's more of an analytical sort of guy. Um, and so they wanted someone who, who embraced analytics. And part, at least in terms of when the Haslam's were interviewing, part of the requests and the demands it seemed like they made whoever took the head coaching job, was to have an analytics person, is what they say, on headset during the games at all times, which is not outrageous. And it happens in other, sp- in, in other teams as well. This is the Browns. Oh, wow. So When all else fails, I guess. Yes. So you have Jimmy Haslam making some demands, one of them being that he wants an analytical person on, with headset access um, and coaching access, you know, access to coaches on game day. Which it's not, it's not out of the ordinary, and now especially analytics being more embraced. You hear John Harbaugh talking about all the time. They always crunch the numbers, always have someone talking about percentages if they go for it, not go for it. So it's not outrageous, and it's not out of the ordinary to have that. But what's really interesting to me is the other, the other demand that Haslam made, which it seems like Josh McDaniels was not in favor of, and it's partly why they kind of both mutually decided to part ways and not um, agree to have a partnership and hire McDaniels, is because Haslam wants hours long Monday after meetings with the coach. So game happens on Sunday. Monday they come in, review the film, talk about the game plan, what happened, what went wrong, what went well. And then after that, he wants a head coach and maybe a few other coaches. It doesn't really seem specific that way. Meeting with Jimmy Haslam basically explained what happened. 
And that, to me, just seems outrageous because, Mark, Jimmy Haslam is like you and me. He's not a football expert. He's not an X's and O expert, right? Like, nothing, like there's nothing Jimmy Haslam can contribute football-wise that will help improve the game plan or help give Kevin Stefanski some sort of guidance in trying to get the offense out of a rut or fix whatever is the issue. So I just feel like that, like, when you have so many restrictions for an already dysfunctional organization, and Joshua Daniels, it seemed like when he wanted to come in, while well, I was very against the hire and just against him, what he stands for, and just kind of how I, I just think he's, he's ready to be a head coach. And to me, what he did with the Colts two years ago, unforgivable for any team. To, so to me, I wouldn't trust him. But he obviously comes from a winning culture, right, with the Patriots under Bill, uh, under Bill Belichick. He knows what it takes to win. He wanted to bring in his own guys and basically have some organizational upheaval and say, we're going to get rid of, you know, th- this has been a stink. This has been a stench on the Browns for so long. We're going to bring in my guys because we're going to bring in winners. We're going to do it my way. And essentially, whoever's going to be hired had was coaching with one hand behind their back because they're going to get what Jimmy has and wants, and he's going to basically pick someone to say, well, you're going to do it my way or the highway. And right now it seems like that's part of the reason why Stefanski is such a, a favorite in the clubhouse is because he's young, so he doesn't really have that gravitas or that chance to that gravitas i love it to, to say no right i mean he has no way to throw around right mm. so he has to basically acquiesce and say whatever you want jimmy i will do sure well, you want meetings three hours you know every monday after the game to explain what happened sure we'll do it so that's why it's just like it's alarming because the browns have been a mess and dysfunctional it seems like everyone agrees to that except the people in the building and that's why i, I am concerned that this is just gonna be the same old stuff because now they, they preach harmony, right? They, they preach, we got an analytical head coach who embraced analytics, Kevin Stefanski. We have Paul DePotesta, chief strategy officer, embraced analytics. Now, it seems like they're going to work in concert together to hire a general manager that fits that. So for the first time, it's, it'll be a streamlined from top to bottom, everyone embracing analytics and kind of being all on board with the strategy going forward. So that seems nice. It sounds good, right? So, okay, this is the Browns finally turning around, turning the corner, having a chance to actually get themselves out of the dumpster they put themselves in the last 20 years. Well, instead now, again, it's just, well, they're going to, you know, there's some, there's some circumstances, there are some things here that we're going to have in place that are really non-negotiable and we're going we're gonna to put in place. If you don't like it, we're going to hire someone else. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's just the same thing over and over again, right? Like, like something has to change. If you have to, you have to, it's just a definition of insanity, at least to me. Like, you're right. You're just going to cycle through and, and if you don't like Kevin Stefanski, do exactly what he wants to do, build and shape this organization, his identity then it's gonna be, he's going to be out in two years, and it's going to be the same thing all over again. They're going to have put the same message out. They want a leader. They really appreciate what Kevin did for their organization, but they think it's time to move on. It's going to be the same thing. It's going to be wash, rinse, repeat. And that's what really gets the nerves that this hire maybe is not the truly the answer that the Browns need to get them out of here. I, I agree, and I think what they needed now was a guy to come in that was at a clear message as far as this is the guy you're accountable for. This is what we stand for. Clean up all the little, you know, the cookies and the and, and the overnight stains that they left uh, when mommy and daddy were gone because they're not capable of being mature enough as an organization and bringing in some of these players that like to do their own thing. Uh, that needs to happen. There needs to be a head coach or a general manager or an owner that says enough is enough. This is my resume. I have achieve these things if we want as an organization to achieve this goal this is how we get there and I was at, like I I just like as much as the next guy these 
unproven offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators getting a chance to break into the head coaching uh, pool and prove themselves. You know, there was a lot, many years where that didn't happen, where you had retreads coming in and again and again and again, uh, hired for different jobs. Now with analytics and with, you know, this new way of breaking down games and that everybody can look at these NFL films. You have fans, you know, all over the world logging into sites where they can access some of this material and be able to design plays. And, I mean, even with Madden football coming out, you have, you know, guys on there who, you know, you can talk to a 12-year-old kid who, like, designs a really complex blitz. Yep. You know, so it's <laughs> it's getting a little uh, out of control with how these things are advancing, how quickly they are. So 20 years ago, you never saw, you would never think that a statistical nerd would be a general manager. Okay, though Theo Epstein kind of was the first, you know, ah, it just won't work out. Like this, this kid, the Red Sox really getting desperate, you know. And he not only turned around one organization that was supposedly mm-hmm. cursed, he turned around two organizations that were supposedly cursed. And I think if you would have told a Red Sox and Cubs fan that by, you know, both of you would end these curses by the same guy, you know, it's like he shouldn't be coaching teams. He should be like a Tony Robbins, <laughs> you know, yeah. giving these inspirational. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he does, you know. Um, but if I had that kind of thing on my resume where I uh, turned the Red Sox and, and Cubs into World Series winners, you know, it'd be like Michael Ruzzini scoring that goal. Like, you didn't have to do a thing for the rest of your life. Right. People buy you drinks oh for yeah. the rest of your life, and and kind of uh, you can live off that. So um, with this new era of statistics and analysis, and to have a guy on this – or to have a guy – you said they want a guy who's on the sideline to do that? No, just headset access. Headset so like access. Analytic, I so think that's in the booth. So, but like, but that's to not do it, yeah. out of the ordinary. That's not But outrageous. still, it's like it's, it just shows how far we've come. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And to yeah. your point too, like every it's not NFL, every sport. Yeah. NBA with the three point shot, it's more analytical. That's why more teams are taking because it's theoretically. Yeah. How many shots per possession can right. we get up? Right. So it's like you're right. Every sport is using analytics to benefit, and it has improved. So it's not. So the Browns are at least in the right mindset, thinking, okay, analytics. You know, analytical thinking is a nice way to kind of get the best results and really put ourselves in the best position to succeed because the information we get is really. It really is It's real and it's working, right? We see it on every team who embraces analytics in all four major sports have showed, like, there's a reason why they're at the top more times than not. But the thing is, so it's not like the Browns have the wrong mindset. It's not like the Browns have a Dave Gettleman mindset where he just looks at the old school run numbers and really, you hear Dave Gettleman talk sometimes, and it's like, this guy is stuck in 1950, right? So the Browns are at least are up to date and in the right age for where the game is going. My concern, though, is just like, to your point, they really need a leader, right? When, when they fired Freddie Kitchens, I thought the two perfect guys for the job, Ron Rivera and Mike McCarthy. You need someone who's been a proven winner, who would come in, set a culture of winning and doing things the right way, and building it through their identity rather than just basically listening to the owner, getting advice from the owner, basically running the team as the owner wants and basically being a puppet for front office. And that's essentially, it seems like, due to this, you know, this report and what, what kind of you hear about Kevin Stefanski being inexperienced, and with the Haslam's having as much input on the interview as they did, is that's what's going to happen, right? Jimmy Haslam wants an interview with the coach, boom, he's going to get it. He wants analytical guys on the headset, he's going to get it. I mean, it's the wrong thing. It just means that the Browns haven't learned from their past mistakes, have not looked themselves in the mirror and say, what has held us back, 
right? For the longest time, they just were so bad. No one wanted to go there. No one wanted to coach there. So for a long time, it was a talent gap, right? They just th did things the wrong way, hired the wrong people, fired them too quickly, just whatever, everything that could go wrong in Cleveland go wrong. Now, finally, they draft a guy. I still high on Baker Mayfield. I still think he could be a really good franchise quarterback. You get two stud receivers in Jarvis Landry and Oda Beckham Jr. You draft Nick Chubb, who's really burst on the scene, been absolutely outstanding. Like, the offense and the defense, Denzel Ward is a nice draft pick. Like, they are starting, Miles Garrett, the same thing. They're starting to actually stack up and pile up talent now, right? Now, there's the excuse of the Browns is not just they have one of the least talented teams in, in, in the league. That's not it anymore. Now it's, well, how can they lead and how can they use this talent to put them in positions to succeed? That, to me, doesn't seem to change too much with Stefanski. And it's not so much him as much as it's the organizational identity and their philosophy of how they go about their business, what they were willing and not willing to concede. And it seems like Jimmy Haslam still wants to have a lot of involvement mm. in the team. And at least for me, like, that does drive – like Mike McCarthy, right? Obviously, it's a little different because he took the Jerry – he went with the Cowboys, took Jerry Jones's, and they have to listen to his input. But at least with Jerry Jones and the Cowboys, it is – the talent is there, and at least, like, they are not dysfunctional in terms of dumpster fire. They're just Jerry being Jerry, and I think they had a lot of talent that was squandered. But it's just, like, you should have brought in one of these guys that's a proven winner that has experience and has a lot of weight in the league to where it's, like, have them establish a culture. Have them build the team through their identity and just step away and, let, like, let the people you hire do their job. That, I guess, is the frustrating part because that, that's not happening here. There's all this – not even backstabbing, but just all these conflicting ideas that because the Hasm's hired. Like, think about it. Deep, Paul DiPodese is an analytical guy. John Dorsey is not an analytical guy. Right. Those two are butting heads on every decision they're making. How is that possibly effective at all in finding talent, drafting talent, signing talent, putting a good product on the field? Like, and Jimmy Hasm was responsible for this because he signed and hired both of these guys and put them in positions to where basically they're going to have to work together, but they are so philosophically opposite on every single aspect of when it comes to finding a football player and how a team should be run and built through that it didn't work out and John Dorsey was fired. So now at least from that sense, they have everyone aligned with the same thought process. Analytics driven, we're going to embrace the numbers and we're going to use a formula, create a formula to help us find number and find players and build positions to succeed. But it's just has them still going to be involved and to me at least, I don't think anything's going to change to be honest. This is the same old Browns and if, what do we talk about, Mark, right? It always starts on the top. The Knicks will never really improve or change until James Dolan is out. It starts on the top. So whoever is hired from that point on is just going to have to listen to the owner and do what they say because if not, they're not going to get the job. They're going to get fired. And so until that changes, until Jimmy Haslam looks himself in the mirror and realizes I have to step away or, or once I hire someone, just let it go. Let them be. Mm -hmm. just, you know, PR could check on, but just trust that they know what they're doing. Trust I made myself the right hire and let them do – what they do best in order to get a winner built here in Cleveland. I don't think that's what happened in this latest head coaching process. Again, outlined by that KenRep.com report. And that's why I get nervous about the Browns. And I was optimistic I was, but now I'm really having some severe second thoughts and just don't think the Browns can get out of their own way. And I don't think much will change, unfortunately, in Cleveland. I would like to see the Browns be good. I would. I'm not rooting against them by far. I like Baker Mayfield a lot it's, again. It just certainly doesn't just, seem like they learned. It just, right. It doesn't they don't. seem it's like they learned. And it's mistakes. very – I could imagine being a Bears, a Bears fan. Well, being a Bears fan would be tough too. But being a Browns fan, I'm being at the height of frustration right now. Because the one thing I think that was clearly evident 
was that this team was immature and that there was signs of a guy that needed to be the clear-cut disciplinarian, as tough as it might seem to these guys, to come in and kind of, you know, smack around it, you know, the kid that doesn't listen, you know, I don't know if you can do that these days, but, you know, you know, or at least uh, make an example out of him by punishing him or, or saying, yeah, you guys, you know what, no more. Uh, right. We, there's a curfew now, okay? No more going out and, you know, uh, you know, letting girlfriends sleep over, okay? Like, these are things you have to be accountable for. And as a team, this is what we represent. You know, no more going to the media, no more crying about this and that. I'm not getting the ball. One moment. Like, let's get one voice coming forward and have each other's backs because that's essentially, essentially what's going to bring us together, not each of us being individuals. I don't know. Like, could he do that? Just kind of like Joe Judge. The Giants didn't have that problem. So for them, it was a little different hire. You could see why, you know, going with another guy that maybe doesn't have a proven resume was the right thing in their case, even though some Giant fans are annoyed about it. But for the Browns, that was a definite. Like, there was no reason you should have not gotten that. A guy like Caldwell or, you know, obviously they missed out right. on – Right, and uh, Jim Cole's another example. Yeah, right, I should have right. included. You're right. So um, they missed out on some guys that they really would have been obvious choices. But, I mean – We'll see. Obvious choices but I, for I don't the competent like it. organization, yeah. right? I don't like it. I think it just shows that for the Browns, who have all this talent, and their fans are so desperate, and they're so loyal, and they're, they're such a like, the real example of like true you know, heartbroken fans that their team left, they come back, and since they've come back, they've been such an embarrassment to them. And I know what it's like to be embarrassed by the teams you root for, all right? And I mean, it's no, big, no, no big deal. Sports is what it is. It has its proper, uh, you know, in life, it's not as, you know, not that important. You know, when you, when you right. talk about it's not real life things. Or death, but yes. Right. But it's still, if you root for a franchise and they publicly embarrass you by losing some games they do or by being a dysfunctional organization, you know, when you're dysfunctional at anything, or, you know, and you're a fan, and you, you root for this team. You think it says something about you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, hey, I root for this team. What does this mean for me if I could root for something so dysfunctional? Uh, you know, so as idiotic as that sounds, a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. Oh a lot yeah. of people have their, own, their identity wrapped yep. up in their team, you know. So I think for those type of people, this was a hard thing to see. <laughs> Yes. If you're a Browns fan. So. At least, again, social media, you can only you know take it for a grain of salt and what it is. But it seems like a lot of at least the pushback already, Browns fans are not too happy with the hire. So we'll see how that works out. But that will do it for this edition of The Morning Boys. Thanks so much for tuning in again. We're here every Monday and Thursday, 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. Enjoy the national title game tonight. It should be a so, so much fun and just a great game. Also, we'll be back on Thursday to talk all about that. Preview both the AFC and NFC Conference Championship games and much more. That again on Thursdays. So enjoy the game tonight. The Haystack is up next. Thanks so much for listening to the Morning Boys right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're, you're, you're listening to the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.